Mr. Spark, we'll leave orbit in two hours. Would you care to beam down and visit your parents? Captain, Ambassador Sarek and his wife are my parents. Bridge to all decks. Brace yourself for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris, and I feel like this is going to be the episode where I'm finally going to deal with my daddy issues. This is that's I think I think this is the time. Well, I think there's a there's a whole lot of generation gap issues that are explored in this episode, as well as so many other things that are explored in this episode. And this is an episode that I've always liked, but I never realized how much is going on, how complex it is and how much it has to say until I rewatched it to prepare for our deep dive on an episode that is absolutely a top-tier episode, probably one of the last truly top-tier episodes of Season 2. That episode is Journey to Babel. And for this landmark episode, we are being rejoined by our landmark guest, Johnny Roca of the Cinephiles with Steve Morris. Johnny, welcome back to Enterprise Incidents. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me back on, especially for this episode uh, and this uh, episode of Star Trek, rather, in this episode here, because I'm looking forward to talking about this episode, which has so much going on. And you're right, Scott, sometimes, you know, you you rewatch these episodes after a long time and you forget how much is going on. You've lived your life. You you experience things. And all of a sudden you watch an episode. You're like, oh, my God, I didn't know all this was happening i can connect this to that connect this to that connect it to that steve mentions his his daddy issues but there's a lot of political intrigue here oh, as yeah. well some great analogies to uh to what might be happening in countries at this time yeah. in the 1960s and then also a great exploration of the relationship between the parents of of spock and in some shades here of stuff they're going to use in the reboot in 2009 to explore zachary quinto's upbringing as Spock on Vulcan, which I think was fantastic. So there's so much here that I can't wait to dive into with you two learned gentlemen. Well, well, that is a great that you brought up the 2009 movie because I definitely have that in my notes to talk about that. But <laughs> but Steve, what was it about Journey to Babel that, that always appealed to you? Why was it always an episode that you liked? Well, you were assuming that it was always an episode that I liked. No. And you're right. It was. I, <laughs> okay. I, liked it. I don't think I gave it as much credit. I, I, I really don't. I think I think I wasn't as excited about the plot elements of it uh, growing up, but always loved the Spock elements. And watching it this time, I'm like, what, man, what was I missing? Because there is it is a really, really tight episode. It absolutely is. And John, what about you? What is, why did you, you know, when we asked, like, what's the next episode that you, John, want to join mm-hmm. us for? You without hesitation, said Journey to Babel. So why is the question? Yeah, well, because I saw, you know, uh, Kirk has always been my guy, but 1A is Spock, and I've always felt that. <laughs> and because I've always aspired to be Spock, uh, to, to respect the intelligence, to have control and calm in situations, it's an aspiration. But this journey here, this idea of being one half human, one half Vulcan, really appealed to me because – as the son of Latino immigrants in this country, I was learning to be one half mm. American while also retaining my Latino uh, foundation. Mm. So, yeah, so exploring this. Plus, my father was a more stoic, kind of quieter guy. My mother was the more nicer, more 
you know, empathetic person. So I saw a lot of my parents in Mark Leonard and Jane Wyatt in, in their approach to this relationship. And so a lot of this spoke to me, Spock's whole. And at the time when I watched this, my father and I have, we'd had a lot of struggles growing up. So, you know, Steve brings that up. So we'll, I'm sure we'll commiserate on that together in our own experiences. <laughs> but yeah, this idea of like, how do I connect? How do I connect? But then the idea of duty, you know, having joined the military, all this. Kind of, so there's a lot here that just kind of spoke to me. And especially as a young kid at that time, just exploring it initially of feeling like I'm part of two different worlds at the same time and the demands of two different worlds uh, as well. Well, it sounds like both of you really resonate this on a very personal level, the way I resonated to Journey to Babel was was just on the episode itself. For one Mm -hmm. thing, like I mentioned, there is a lot going on. It is an absolute classic in every sense of the word because it is such a deep Spock episode, much deeper, I would say, than even the likes of a mock time or this side of paradise. It's also a bottle show, which is why uh, the budget uh, or the cost of the episode wound up being so low. But there is a lot going on here, and it's all perfectly balanced in the screenplay written by the legend herself, Dorothy Fontana. This is her fifth Star Trek script. And it is the 13th Star Trek episode, 13 out of 14, I have to say, to be directed by Joseph Pefney, who directed you know so many of the great episodes. It aired on November 17th, 1967. So it was the 39th episode of the original series to air, but it was actually the 45th episode to be filmed. So they filmed it you know, way in 45, but they moved it up because they knew they had something really, really special. So it was filmed. Within six days, so it was on schedule, filmed between September 21st and September 28th, 1967. The total cost of this episode was $171,439, which fortunately brought it under budget because by this point, and we talked about this during our last deep dive with the great Ralph Sinensky, that the budget was lowered after Paramount took over from Desilu. So the budget now per episode was around 180 to 182,000. So this episode came under budget around $11,000. The score was tracked, so you didn't have to worry about a new score. But there's a lot going on with the generation gap of the 60s. This episode is about family, both personal and professional. This episode is about communication, hence the name Babel. It's about sacrifice. There are a lot of sacrifices going on here. And it's about finding common ground, not just a common ground between Spock and Sorak, uh, but also the ambassadors that are on the Enterprise, the delegates that are on their way to Babel, uh, a sacrifice that Kirk makes to stay on the bridge so that Spock can make the sacrifice to to uh, do the transfusion with his father. So, so much great stuff here. And the makeup work by Fred Phillips was absolutely fantastic. Now, the episode written by Fontana, she did her story outline on June 23rd, 1967. She wrote a second draft teleplay dated August 22nd. And then Gene Kuhn came in, did two script polishes, uh, the second of which came in on August 31st. And then Gene Roddenberry did his script polish, the second revised final draft on September 19th. Now, between Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry, it may sound like uh, there was a lot of rewriting going on here over Fontana's screenplay, but there actually wasn't. And as we get through this episode, you'll see that the, the differences between the earlier versions and the final versions are actually very minor. 
Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when we were filming this episode? I'm sure there were a lot. <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's not, not too heavy a week. The first thing on September 22nd, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Russian dissident writer, he was expelled from the Union of Soviet Writers, making it impossible for his work to be published within the Soviet Union. This is who wrote um, the Gulag Archipelago, and this is one of the great books criticizing uh, the Soviet Union um, of all time. Quite a brilliant writer. This one's just it's a crazy story. On September 23rd, they're 14 teenagers. They're sitting in an all-night diner, and they look out and see a bunch of sirens, and there is a nursing home across the street that's on fire. They run across the street, and these 14 teenagers save 53 out of the 57 people bringing them out of the burning building. Wow. It's kind of an amazing story. Where's that movie? Oh, my God. Yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on uh, September 24th, you know, we've been talking about the aftermath of the Six Days War. Um, settlements were approved for the captured West Bank. And this is, again, it's just seeing the seeds of this conflict that we're still dealing with 55 years later. Uh, on the same day, the Karasoke Research Center opened. And I was like, why is that name so familiar? And what it is, is it is the center created to protect the gorillas, the mountain gorillas in Rwanda, created by Diane Fossey. So this is what Gorillas of the Mist is about. Uh, Surveyor 5, which we've been talking about for a while, has now powered down on the moon. It is done sending images. On September 27th, Canada broke with the United States for the first time on Vietnam policy. They went in front of the United Nations and urged the U.S. to make an unconditional halt of all bombings of North Vietnam. And on September 28th, a huge deal for Catholics, Archbishop John F. Darden announced at a national conference of Catholic bishops that all masses would begin to be in English. It was mm. the end of the Latin mass uh, in Catholic churches in the United States. Well, who still speaks Latin anyway? <laughs> I heard from Rushmore it's a dead language. so you know. <laughs> yeah, That's right. <laughs> um, uh, would you like to journey to Babel? Yes. So we begin with the return of the dress uniforms. Dress uniforms, spit and polish. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to stand this. Well, they are dress uniform because they are in orbit around Vulcan. This is the second time we're seeing the Enterprise in orbit around Vulcan after the the first episode that aired for the second season, which was a mock time. But all we see is the Enterprise in orbit around Vulcan. We don't get to see the surface this time, which is really kind of a missed opportunity. But but again, that was the budget. <laughs> Um, and what we hear is that they're Vulcan delegates coming to the Enterprise and that they walk out into the corridor, which I got to say, there are more extras in this episode than I think in any episode we've ever seen of Star Trek. And not only is there are there a lot of people walking around the corridors of the Enterprise, but they're they're dressed up in their various wardrobe, and some of them are made up because they are aliens from other planets. And the Enterprise is a very busy ship, and there's a lot going on on the Enterprise because they are all being taken to uh, to to Babel for a a conference, and it's going to get very heated. 114 ambassadors and dignitaries aboard the ship. That's a lot. That's a big ship. Well, and and it's interesting, too, because we're finding out more about this is one of the things the Enterprise does Mm -hmm. is it's on a big diplomatic mission. And as they're walking down the hall in their dress uniforms, Mr. Spock silently joins them. And I just think it's so interesting that he says nothing for most of this teaser. Shuttlecraft approaching with Ambassador Sarek's party. Estimate arrival one minute. And I think the way Joseph Pevney shot this is beautiful. It is so 
cinematic what he's doing as we're looking at the shuttlecraft in the background we have all of the red guys lined up we have mccoy and spock in the foreground outside the door and the door of the shuttle opens and we see way way in the background sarah get out of the shuttlecraft it's really really a great shot now you might be asking yourself why are the vulcans coming aboard the enterprise by way of a shuttlecraft why don't they just beam up wouldn't that just save a whole lot of pro- time? I mean, they're in orbit around Vulcan anyway. It's not like, you know, metamorphosis where they're traveling, you know, to right. the Enterprise from a very distant world. The reason for that, my friends, is money. <laughs> with, uh, with all of the money that was being spent on extras and on makeup and on wardrobe for this episode, even though it came in way under budget, uh, the fact is that it actually was cheaper for them to construct a makeshift shuttlecraft bay like the one that we see in this episode, it was cheaper to do that than it was to have all of those Vulcan delegates beam aboard the Enterprise. Guess how much it costs to do the transporter effect for each person, whether they are beaming up or beaming down? Hmm. How much do you think, fellas? For each person? $5,000. $800. Wow. Wait, Steve, that is a hell of a guess. Oh, really? The reason for that is because in 1967, when this episode was being filmed, it cost $810 per person to either beam up or beam down or just show each person's transporter effect, whether it's on a planet or on the Enterprise. But But because of that, because of all the Vulcan delegates, it was cheaper to just have them walk out of the shuttlecraft bay door and, uh, Go back to what you said, Steve. The way that Joseph Pevney set this up was terrific. And you hear that that score, that uh, sort of uh, military-style score when, when, when the, the Vulcans exit. You know, that's reused from a mock time uh, because it is Vulcans. And there's a lot of security guards here, too. A lot of retros. Eight of them. Mm-hmm. And I love the moment McCoy is standing next to Spock and asks about that Vulcan salute, and Spock shows it to him, and McCoy says, That hurts worse than the uniform. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great little bit of levity. And then we see, and it's a great entrance. Ambassador Sarek comes forward. He's framed perfectly in that doorway, goes to Kirk, their introductions. He introduces Spock, who says, Vulcan honors us with your presence. We come to serve. Sarek is not amused. <laughs> nope. And and you could see that Kirk is picking up on like that. That seemed weird. Kirk is the observer. Kirk is the yep. observer, and he's already observing that something is amiss between Spock and Sarek. And, and he introduces McCoy, and I love that Sarek does the Vulcan salute, and you see McCoy's hand down low, like you can literally see him thinking about trying to do it and deciding not to. <laughs> That's just a great little moment. This is Sarek, played by Mark Leonard. Of course, we recognize Mark Leonard as the Romulan commander from Balance of Terror. This is the first time that he's playing a Vulcan and the only time that we will see Mark Leonard playing Sarek in the original series. So he's playing Spock's father, yet at the time, uh, Sarek was 43 years old and he was only seven years older than Leonard Nimoy, who played his son. But of course, we all know that Mark Leonard reprised Sarek many times over in the animated series uh, episode yesteryear. Of course, the movies Search for Spock, Voyage Home, Undiscovered Country, and again in the next generation for uh, the Sarek and Unification Part 1 episode. And of course, he played the Klingon commander at the beginning 
of Star Trek The Motion Picture, which you can hear the three of us talk about in two parts on The Cinephiles. I think his performance is amazing. Yeah. I think he's so, there's so much there. It's really different from the Romulan commander. And in the next moment, he introduces his wife with this gesture. It's his finger gesture that we're going to repeat over and over again. Captain Kirk? Our pleasure, madam. So, John, what, what did you yeah. think, like, immediately watching? And, you, you know, you just sort of, like, you, you could see immediately that there is tension between Spock and Sarek. Yeah, you know, and there are certain actors that play certain roles that when you see them immediately, they connect to you, right? And immediately, as as Mark Leonard walked in, you know, because you you'd, by this point, you'd seen, what, a season and nine episodes of Star Trek. And Spock was seen as this really intelligent guy understands the situation sometimes is the smartest person in the room about what to do best in certain situations. And so to have someone come in who almost immediately Spock become regresses to being the child of, because even Leonard Nimoy does the subtle shift in his face when Mark Leonard is around him, almost kind of like uh, out of deference or respect to him. That is so interesting. And Mark Leonard carries himself with such a nobility and a regalness when he comes to, plus the design of the cop. It's just fantastic. And then, of course, uh, Jane, uh, Jane Wyatt coming in, just completely different, softer look. It's so great to see the juxtaposition of the two. And you immediately are like, wait, there's something here, just like Kirk. And then when they introduce him as his parents, you're just like, what? This is awesome. So immediately, and I'll tell you, Sarek is my favorite recurring character in Star Trek. Just my favorite recurring character in Star Trek. So when 2009, when the reboot happened and Ben Cross, who I love in Chariots of Fire, was cast to play Sarek, I went in with my eyebrow raised, wondering if they were going to get it right. Because you can get Kirk right with Chris Pine, but you better get Sarek right as well <laughs> in Star Trek. So they really did. He was great. Ben Cross was great for sure. And, and the interesting thing, uh, you know, you talk about the, the 2009 movie, Ben Cross yeah. really did a great job channeling that tension between yes. Sarek and Spock. But, you know, what's great about this moment, you know, you have them all standing together. So you have the tension between between Spock and Sarek. You have... You, you could see that Kirk absolutely notices. And then thank goodness you had the levity brought in by McCoy when he tries to do the Vulcan salute. So Jane Wyatt, who was credited at the end of this episode as Miss Jane Wyatt, that is a sign of respect for the fact that even at this point in her career, Jane Wyatt was a respected legend in Hollywood because she is a three-time Emmy winner for her performance as Margaret Anderson on the classic series Father Knows Best. And of course, uh, Jane Wyatt reprised her role as Amanda for 1986's Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And she was also on TV in shows like Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, St. Elsewhere. And in the movies, talk about a classic. Uh, she's been in some of the greats, like 1934's Great Expectation, 1937's Lost Horizon, directed by Frank Capra. and oh, 1940s, really? Yeah, yeah. 1947's Gentleman's Agreement, mm -hmm. starring Gregory Peck. And the reason that Dorothy Fontana named Spock's mother Amanda is because Amanda means worthy of being loved. Wow. Um, by the way, Lost Horizon is a really interesting, totally unlike any other Frank Capra movie. Uh, definitely an odd one. Here's the thing I was wondering is like, okay, you've been watching this. It's in 1967. You've been watching these episodes air. You've heard many, many times that Spock is half human. Yeah. That's really well established. 
What I wonder is, is the audience ahead at this moment that you meet Amanda, see that she's human, has the audience, how much of the audience has started to go, oh my God, that could be Spock's parents? I think the audience is very ahead. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even when this episode aired for the first time uh, on November 17th, 1967, uh, I'm sure that with commercials and coming attractions and maybe reading the TV guide synopsis, mm, whatever. Right. Uh, I, I mean, you'd have to be pretty thick headed not to know that these were Spock's parents. As soon as you're settled, I'll arrange a tour of the ship. Mr. Spock will conduct you. Which makes sense. They're Vulcans. He's a Vulcan. I prefer another guide, Captain. Ooh, already. I mean, he is like, like he walked onto that ship. Sarek walked onto that ship with a with a big chip on his shoulder with yeah. Mr. for Mr. Spock. <laughs> he, he's not an easy character. I mean, he's I, he's a great character for that reason, but he ain't yeah. easy. Uh, and and Kirk, of course, reacts to that and then says, which I think is strange that he says this so publicly, but says, "Mr. Spock, we'll leave orbit in two hours. Would you care to beam down and visit your parents?" Uh, this is great. This is great. I love that they cut to yeah. I love that they cut to Amanda who looks over at her son and you could totally see that she's going, how are you going? So first of all, she's going, you didn't tell them. <laughs> and then she's going, how are you going to respond to this? And Spock says, Captain, Ambassador Sarek and his wife are my parents. And I love the reactions, you know, Kirk like looks at them like he's like, like, like happily surprised. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like he looks at him like, like, you know, the music that plays the music sting on that uh, is, is more dramatic than, than the look that Kirk uh, gives to the two of them. So here's my question for both of you. I want to start with John on this. Okay. So, so Steve, you made a comment about Sarek, you know, how he's like, something's definitely up with him. So watching journey to Babel, watching just the teaser, and even after finding out now that Ambassador Sarek and his wife are his parents, do you like Sarek? Yeah. Do you like him? Yeah. As I said, there's something about his stoicness and his regalness and nobility and how he walks through. And the, and Steve makes a great point, something I wanted to say as well. This is one of my favorite um, directed film, directed uh, shows in Star Trek. And just that shot of how they introduce him is so great. And so immediately I'm like, oh, this is a this is a man of some respect and some import. So immediately I do like him, even though he's ignoring his son. And that makes me even more curious as to why he's ignoring his son. And so immediately I like both of these people as they come through that kind of door there to stand there in the elevator with them. So I, I yeah, absolutely immediately liked Sarek. Steve. So as a character, I love him. I think he is an amazing character. As a person, I think he is extremely admirable. He is also uh, no, I don't like him. I mean, it's like liking him is it's, it's a different thing. Is that I go like you? He is, I think, in some ways, so driven to a certain code that he's almost that he's hypocritical. You know what I mean? Like, and and he has so many big blind spots. But I love him as a character. I love him. Absolutely. See, see, now here's the thing, and this 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 really like leans into some of the things that the episode really touches on. And I think I, you know, even though I think these are things that you guys relate to more than I do. Hmm. So, do I respect who Sarek is as Spock's father? Yes. Hmm. Do I respect that Sarek is a Vulcan ambassador? One hundred percent, of course. Do I like him? No. 
And there are a couple reasons for that. One, because he walked onto the Enterprise and he's so clearly he's being a part of this mission to uh, with all these other delegates who are also aboard the Enterprise and he can't put his personal feelings aside. Second, as we will see throughout the course of this episode, the way that he treats Amanda is extremely conservative, mm. is extremely traditional to a fault. And I say traditional in the in the late 60s sense mm. of, of, uh, of a man being the dominant uh, part of a, of a marriage. And, and that disappoints me just to see that, that he is so uh, domineering over Amanda and also that Amanda just kind of goes along with that. But again, you know, that was the times and I get that. The other thing is this, um, you know, when this side of paradise aired, we heard right before the big fight in the transporter room that uh, Spock's father was an ambassador, his mother, a teacher. And that was always in the back of uh, of the mind of Dorothy Fontana, who wrote that episode for when mm-hmm. she wrote this. Now, of course, we're, we're now seeing, of course, that Sarek is an ambassador, but we are not hearing anything mentioned at all about Amanda being a teacher. Maybe she's already retired. You know, that's mm-hmm. probably the reason. But in the very first draft, it was established that Sarek and Amanda had been married for 38 years, that Sarek was an astrophysicist. Before he became an ambassador, and here's the other interesting uh, bit of trivia, is that Sarek's father, whose name was Sharil, was also a famous Vulcan ambassador. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Um, I think this is a great teaser. And we've had so many Mm -hmm. like action-packed teasers that are really thrilling, and this is just a full character teaser but it's one that has as much of an impact i think to launch us into the show as any of the others and i think by the way key to it is spock's silence yeah it's him not talking that makes it so key well the other thing that makes that moment key is as we will see and hear that sarek was disappointed that spock chose starfleet over the vulcan science academy but i think steve you know we talked about this when we talked about this particular episode and and john this is something that that you know i'm not sure maybe you never never considered this like the way that you know just we're 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 tying the the series together in a serialized way Mm -hmm. but i think there's a little bit uh, a, a very, very submerged on the side of Spock because he suppresses so much of his emotion, or at least he tries to, yeah. that Spock is a little uh, bitter at Sarek for not being at his wedding oh. that we saw oh, in, yeah. in a mock time. Like, like, why wasn't he there? Was it was was Sarek off world because he's an right. ambassador? Was right. Amanda with him? Or was Sarek not at Spock's wedding in a mock time because of the, because of just how much they are estranged? But either way, yeah. I think that that plays into like the, the the side of Spock that is also being stubborn about his relationship with his father. And certainly, we hear later it's been eighteen years since he what visited or came down to visit them in bulk. So that's right. There's a lot of stuff here. <laughs> yeah. <Not on> back. <laughs> well. Yes, yes. And, I, and I'm and i going to withhold, I'm going to refrain from saying the, a lot of thoughts I have until we get later on in the thing. We come back in Act 1, and we hear a little bit more in the log about what's going on, that there's that we're heading toward a neutral planetoid codenamed Babel, and that that's why we have all these ambassadors and delegates here. Kirk is the one giving the tour. This is the engineering section. There are a number of emergency backup systems for the main control. And by the way, again, as we're walking through the hall, there's all of these aliens 
and people, it's really populated. We go into engineering and there is Spock who stands as they come in. And again, I agree. I think John Joseph Pevney, this is the best directed episode that, 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 Spock stands and Amanda stays with him and Kirk and Sarah could go into the background. It's all really, really well shot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so we, this, this is great. And I just love the way that Kirk is like showing uh, Spock and Amanda around the enterprise, you know, with all these other delegates walking by. So, so we, we've established that they're, they're proceeding to a neutral planetoid codenamed Babel. And that's the title of the episode journey to Babel. So Babel is a reference to the 11th chapter of Genesis in the mm-hmm. Old Testament. And at that point, all of mankind spoke one language until their deference to establish themselves as being so powerful, to consolidate their powerful, uh, how powerful they were, they built a massive tower. Yep. And God struck back at humanity, confusing mankind by creating various languages so they no, they, they no longer spoke the same language. So there was now confusion. And that, that, that word Babel, that word confusion, is, is about the, the lack of communication between Sarek and Spock, and mm. also about the confusion in communication with all of the delegates on the Enterprise. That title is uh, very, very fitting. Yeah, that was something that, that's a story that always struck me growing up Catholic. The idea of like, because the way it was presented to me was that humanity had grown so arrogant yep. that they felt they could build a tower to touch God. Right. And God punished them uh, halfway through the building of the tower or whatever and, and had them speak, like put other languages down on all of them so that they could never come together yep. to build a tower again to kind of reach or pierce heaven with a tower. And so yeah, that's it's an right. interesting story. It's an interesting story. And I, and I love that it appeals to the stuff going on here, right? People speaking different languages, even though they're speaking the same language, it's fascinating, you know, so, whether verbally uh, or non-verbally. So, yeah, I, I've <laughs> always, I, I've always loved this story too, uh, ever since I first heard it. And I think what's so interesting that I've been thinking about is like, okay, they were arrogant and then God made them speak other languages. And I actually think in, in this episode, it's very true. There is a, direct connection between arrogance and the inability to communicate Mm. when you're so locked into your own ideas and are certain you're right it's suddenly you can't listen to other people and it becomes really hard to communicate after all these years among humans you still haven't learned to smile wow Mm. humans smile with so little provocation there's so many things i wish that spock would tell his mom he's but he's passive aggressive spock he takes these shots He's, he's taking a shot at humanity saying humans laugh oh, yeah. so easily, blah, blah, blah. So he's taking a shot at his mom a little bit. So, yeah. Because uh, what oh, I right. think, because what I think, and 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 because this is what Scott and I have been talking about so much, mm-hmm. is Spock has gone through so many things in the yeah. course of this series. And he has smiled a couple of times. Yes. You know, he's had real, he's involved emotionally. And I think when dad shows up, Spock regresses. That's evident from the moment, like as you pointed out during the teaser, Steve, that when Kirk and McCoy are walking down the corridor, you know, Spock kind of just kind of comes up behind them, doesn't say anything. And you could already tell that Spock is, uh, he's got a lot on his mind. He's a little on edge. And and this is coming from someone who's trying to suppress his emotions. And it's still obvious that he's uh, certainly concerned about what is yet to come. And you haven't come to see us in four years either. The situation between my father and myself has not changed. 
Yeah, so I was confused by this. The four years, and then later this, she says 18 years. So did he come and visit within those 14 years? Uh, you know, four years since he came, but then 14 years before that, and they didn't speak? Like, is that what happened? I'm just fascinated by that, you know? I, I, a lot of, a lot I, of fascination going on, Steve. <laughs> well, I no, I totally, I, I, I totally get, I'm sure that you guys have been aware of family feuds you know, and big tensions within a family sure, there. Yeah. I have been at the holiday party where the, the both people were in the same room and you, weren't, you know, yeah. and were barely relating. You know, became, my father family. and I lived together. Like when I lived in my father, and I went a whole year without speaking, living in the same house. A yeah. whole year. Wow. We communicated wow. through my mom or through my sister. Like, Really, it was deep. until he took me to the World Cup in 1994. That's when things started. <laughs> that yeah, it started to fall between us. But like up until that point, we had not. There was a massive fight, and we had not spoken for a year it's in the same house. It's crazy. Yeah, so that's what, stubborn people, man. <laughs> um, and apparently, so are Vulcans. Like, yes. <laughs> so, hey, so that's what I think. Is yet yes, he came back for things, but it, it was still in the middle of this fight, and then. Um, Sarek says, my wife, attend. And we see that gesture. I love that gesture. Okay, see, that's the that's what bothers me. The, 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 hand, the, the, the Yeah, I mean, listen, first of all, it, it's, it is worth noting that when Sarek, uh, well, rather, Mark Leonard and Jane Wyatt, had, they had asked Leonard Nimoy about, like, how do, we, how do we go ahead and sort of play your parents? And it was actually Leonard Nimoy's suggestion to have Sarek and Amanda constantly touching with with their fingers and the reason for that was because Nimoy already felt that so much about Vulcan was done through hands you have the Vulcan salute you have mm. the net the, you know the the famous Spock neck pinch you have right. the mind meld so I mean this is where Nimoy was just so brilliant when it came to not just establishing Spock but also establishing Vulcans. So he was the one who said, you know, do try to do a lot with your hands. And that's where that gesture of them touching their, their fingers together came from. But, but the way that, that Sarek basically summons Amanda and, and she yes. just like says, you know, goes right over, you know, stops talking to Spock, goes to Sarek. And it's almost like, like I get the feeling, I got the feeling watching, watching journey to Babel again, this time to prep for this, uh, podcast episode that like uh, Sarek says jump and Amanda says how high so that's that's where I feel like the the, the husband wife relationship is a little too traditional for by 60 standards I, I just wish that there had been more strength on the part of Amanda yeah I mean I, I absolutely hear you man I mean I I'm of two minds of this because I absolutely felt that way too Scott as I was watching it but by the same token, if this is a relationship that they're both consensually agreeing to be a part of in the way that it's constructed, like her as a human being, because she even explains it to Kirk later on in the episode, right? He demand felt like a demand. And she's like, well, you don't know Vulcans. This is how it ah. is. Not, you can't take it personal. And then there are some genuine moments with them, like when they're sitting in the um, – like I, I got teary-eyed this morning watching it again over breakfast, watching it again for, for, for this show – like when she says to him, to to Mark Leonard or to Sarek, like, you know, you're proud of him. I mean, I'm, I'm getting emotional now talking. You're proud of your son. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that quiet moment and they're connecting. He he surrenders his vulnerability to her. You know, he says, you know, you, you embarrassed Spock. You embarrassed Spock. You don't do that. 
he's, you know, he's trying to establish himself, you know? And so those are those, when you hate your parents as a kid or a teenager, you don't know that your parents are having those discussions in a separate room without you. Right. 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 How would that change you? You know, if you could see those discussions and really understand how much your father loves you or your mother loves you, they just approach you from a different way that you don't understand, you know, at the time. And so I I felt like, so yes, I get your point. Absolutely. But I also, I never feel like she's subservient to, to Sarek. Um, but it certainly can appear that way. So I totally hear because she does say wife attend and she, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. So I think this is something that's come up a lot on the cinephiles, which is what is the viewpoint of the movie or the TV show versus what are the characters doing is that I think it is absolutely true that the behavior of Sarek towards his wife is I am in charge. But I also think that the show itself undermines it with the scene, John, that you mentioned where where she talks to Kirk about this yeah, because he notices it. Kirk, this character, doesn't approve of the way that Sarek treats Amanda. Right. And that, that comes out. And then I 100% agree that they punch holes in Sarek's invulnerability many times. Yep. And we see that, in fact, she does have the upper hand on him in a lot of ways. And this is how they've established their relationship. Not that I think it's cool that a man treats his wife that way. I don't. But I think it's cool within the context of the show in terms of it's it's interesting. And And the next moment is so – I think Kirk makes one of his absolutely rare mistakes, which is he calls over Spock and asked Spock to explain the computers to Sarek and his wife. Explain the computer components. And there's this long, awkward pause. <laughs> awkward. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, dude, you should know better. You don't jump in in the middle of a family argument and try to resolve it without knowing anything. Um, well, wait a minute. Don't, don't you think, my question to you, Steve and John, is mm. do you think that Kirk deliberately brought Spock over to explain the computers to Sarek and Amanda to continue to observe or to kind of maybe break the ice between them? I think it's a hundred percent break the ice. I think it is absolutely intentional. He goes, I'm going to get them to talk to each other in some way and maybe they'll warm up to each other. I think that's exactly what he's trying to do. I do too. John. Yeah. I think think Kirk very much likes to intercede and uh, get involved in situations and try to fix them for the better. Um, whether he should or shouldn't is a separate conversation, but it's certainly a character trait of his that he has shown multiple times up to this point in the um, in the show. I gave Spock his first instruction in computers, Captain. He chose to devote his knowledge to Starfleet instead of the Vulcan Science Academy. And you know what's, what else is interesting? And, and John, I'm so glad at the top of this conversation that you brought up the 2009 Star Trek movie, mm. uh, which is I, I will not rest both of you until <laughs> we do our deep dive of that 2009 movie on the cinephiles. Yeah. I mean, that is one movie that I am absolutely dying to do on the cinephiles with both of you. In addition to the social network, uh, just putting that out there, but, but John, yeah. by bringing up the 2009 movie at this point, we hear that Spock chose the Vulcan science, chose yeah. Starfleet over the Vulcan science Academy. And we hear We hear about that now, but we actually see that rift back in uh, the 2009 movie when he chooses, you know, during that scene when uh, when sort of fresh-faced uh, Zachary Quinto as Spock, yeah. uh, you know, basically tells the Vulcan Science Academy, you know, 
F off. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, shouldn't have left him in a pit uh, being made fun of by other Vulcans. You know, yeah, a man yeah. had to make decisions. So, you know. And I also find it interesting, by the way, that Sarek says, I gave Spock his first instruction in computers. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need to explain. A, it's you don't need to explain computers to me. Right. And B, <laughs> Spock certainly doesn't get to explain computers to me. I'm sorry, Mercenary. I did not mean to offend. I thought that offense is a human emotion, Captain. <laughs> what yeah. I wrote down here, maybe I'll edit this out, but what I wrote down here is, what a dick. <laughs> wow, really? See, this is, Steve, that's what I mean. Like, it's funny. I never thought about this for all these years, and I hate to say the word decades of watching Journey to Babel, but for the first time, I'm really looking at Sarah going like, I don't know if I like this guy. Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, again, I respect him. I respect yeah. that he's an ambassador. But mm-hmm. I don't think I like him as a as a person. I mean, I think as a father, he's he's behaving like a child. I mean, he's being stubborn, and Kirk is about to say that to to Amanda right now. And by the way, I do have to say that the chemistry between William Shatner and Jane Wyatt is fantastic. Oh, yeah, totally great. Sorry, I just don't understand. Amanda, I'm afraid you couldn't pronounce the Vulcan name. And I think this is a, a it seems like a throwaway line, but I actually think it's kind of really important. He asks if she can, and she says, Well, after fashion and after many years of practice. The reason I think it's important is that a big hunk of this episode is does she really understand Vulcans? Now, let's put let's put this in a little box, right? Steve, you're Jewish. We just had a fantastic show talking about Judaism and in, in Whoopi Goldberg and all of that on the Outlaw Nation show. Um, but when people convert for the love of someone else, they spend a lot of time learning how to say these things, learning the culture, learning the history, learning if they're authentically converting, there's a lot of new stuff that they have never even spoken or heard. Some of the Hebrew words, the terminology, all of that, that they have to kind of get into their mouths and learn how to say, learn how to speak and when to use it and all of that. So to me, I see her saying that as, as correlative, you know, that she had to spend a lot of time learning about it and to, and after a fashion, I can say it, but People who really grew up with it, they know how to say it correctly, but I'm doing the best I can with what I have. And I think Kirk is trying to take a shot at her a little bit, going like, can you say your own name? And she, and he's, she's just like, yeah, after a few years, little smartass, I can do it. Yeah, why don't you chill the F out a little bit? So I like that there's a little banter between, and I'm going to encourage you both to revisit your feelings about sorry, because I feel like you're both looking at it through human eyes. And he's not a human. He's a Vulcan. You but he's acting like a human, and he's a human pure Vulcan. He's acting like a human. He's a and he's a pure Vulcan. And you know what, Steve and John? Yeah. It just it just occurred to me. Yeah. So so Kirk asks Amanda, "Do you know how to say your Vulcan name?" Mm-hmm, and Amanda mm-hmm. has that response, saying, "It took right. it took a lot of years, but I got it." So going back to this side of paradise, which mm-hmm. just like Journey to Babel was also written by Dorothy Fontana, mm. and there's a Layla Colomi in the transporter room after the spores have worn off and she has professed her love for Spock. Mm-hmm. And it's such a wonderful, wonderful scene. Well, so well acted by, by, by the two of them. And Layla says to Spock, you never told me you had a first name. And Spock says, wipes the tear away and has a little smile. And he says, you couldn't pronounce it. So I never thought in all these years that that the the continuity that that we are establishing throughout the original series would even go there 
but it actually does. And I think that is just an incredible level of detail on the part of Dorothy Fontana to extend that from, mm. from this side of paradise to Journey to Babel. Shall we continue the tour? My husband did request it. It sounded more like a command. Well, of course. He's a Vulcan. I'm his wife. And Spark is his son. Mm. I mean, Kirk is out there trying to defend his friend really clearly. And she says, and I think this is, again, this is what this episode is about. Well, you don't understand the Vulcan way, Captain. It's logical. It's a better way than ours. So this scene, I think, is, is one, of the, one of the most uh, touching scenes because it shows how much Spock means to Kirk that he yeah. is trying to uh, bridge the gap between Spock and Sarek. But in actuality, Dorothy Fontana, she did not write this scene. This scene was written by Roddenberry during mm. that final rewrite, that final polish that he did. Mm. And Fontana, who I assumed would love the scene, actually had reservations about the scene. She did not think it was appropriate for Kirk to go there with Amanda, and she did not approve of the way the scene was rewritten by Roddenberry. Interesting. Mm. I'm not going to disagree with her. I think Why? she's right to have Why? the issue with it all because it's not Kirk's business. It's not your business what goes on between family members. It ain't mm. your business to interview. I don't care how much of a friend you are. It ain't your business. Wow. So I like how DC, appro- uh, uh, sorry, Miss Fontana approaches it. It's more of a matter of like, this is a circular thing now that being said does it work out is it part does it work with the overall construction of the show absolutely in the world that roddenberry wanted to build yes because for him he was very clear about the vision he had right her approach to it was a little bit more about going singularly into the this family and so i get why she would feel like it's not kirk's place to comment on something like this uh, but gene had a bigger picture thing to worry about right so there's the difference in approach you know I think I think this is really interesting. I've gone back and forth in my head about how I feel. <laughs> I I like I really do like the scene. I mm-hmm. also think, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, button into, you know, someone's family relationships when you don't know the whole story yeah. is 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 usually a mistake. But I do love this moment because she after saying it's not easy the Vulcan way, she says, "It has kept Spark and Sarek from speaking as father and son for 18 years." And Kirk takes that in and says, Spock is my best officer and my friend. I love that line. Yeah, I yeah. do love that line. I love now, that. Yeah. And, and what I love, too, that she says, I'm glad he has such a friend. Right. Sure. As I think mother, that's so right? great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she concedes that the Vulcan way has these issues. And so she's in this she's kind of meeting him halfway in his um frustration of it because of course she's human so she understands why kirk's butting in humans butt in it's just a natural thing and she so she's understanding at his level why he's saying things and so to appease him and also to like genuinely feel to express happiness that spock has a friend like kirk uh to kind of be there for him and guide him because she just said she hasn't spoken to her dad in 14 years or he hasn't spoken to his dad in 14 years or 18 years that's crazy Okay, like, so yeah. let's listen. The, the fact that Amanda responded so quickly. I'm glad he has such a friend. The reason why Amanda immediately responded is because it must have gotten back to Amanda, the sacrifice that Kirk made oh, wow. in a mock time. 
It must have gotten back to them. They must have known, even if they weren't present at the wedding in a mock time, it must have gotten back to them. Oh my God, you got to hear what T'Pring pulled, you know, with T'Pau at Spock's wedding. Like, you know, she made Kirk fight the, the Cali Fee with Spock, you know, and she must have known that. And that is one of the reasons why Amanda really embraces Kirk, I think. And and she embraces, he goes, I'm glad he has such a friend. She's basically saying, I know what you did. I know the sacrifice you made. That's great. I had never had that thought. I think that is an amazing thought. I did, because watching it this time, I went, wow, she comes back really quick yes. with that answer. And I, and I don't know if this was in their heads, but I think that makes total sense. I think that's awesome. And the other, because the other thing I think about is what do we hear her describe Spock as a kid? Is this kid who came home stiff-lipped, but you knew the human side was crying inside. Hmm. This has got to be a mom that's worried about her kid forever. And to know that he has a friend like Kirk, like a real true best friend that's got to make her feel so much better and by the way uh, with all this all the talk all the family talk in this episode not one mention of spock's sister michael burnham from star trek discovery i mean i'm just you know i'm just saying like I, I really embrace all the differences that all of Johnny, Johnny. I mean, come on, Johnny. I, I really you and embrace Burnett. you and Burnett out there on that island yelling and screaming. I just, <laughs> I just gotta say, like, I mean, I really embrace all the differences. I I I, I love all the big swings that the, the various Star Trek shows have taken. Like the biggest swing of, you know, I love Deep Space Nine. I think Deep Space Nine is, oh, yeah. is just one of the one of the best uh, Star Trek shows, but I mean, Discovery, Spock having a sister that they never talked about ever and that like Spock never yeah. confided to Kirk. Hey, guess what? I got a sister and she's human. Like, I just, all right. It's, yeah. It was a little preposterous, but well, well, that, he might have done that's that it. He didn't want, he might've done that because he didn't want Spock, uh, Kirk to hit on her. He didn't want Kirk to hit on her. You know, true. I'm just putting out there. I so think he was good. an attractive woman. So yeah. Go ahead, watch I her. think he was gonna tell Kirk about his sister, but Cybok told him he shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> there you my go. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, wait till they find out that Spock served with a, one of Khan's ancestors. Wait till they find that out. There you go. There oh, you go. Um, that, that's coming next. I take it is that Spock disagreed with his father on a choice of career. And she says that he has nothing against Starfleet, and we have a little bit about Starfleet. And it's a better opportunity for a scientist to study the universe than he could get at the Vulcan Science Academy. Perhaps. But Sarek wanted Spark to follow his teachings as Sarek followed the teachings of his own father. There you go. There you go. That's right. Okay. Here's here's a thing that I've been thinking about. Mm. So Sarek is like the traditional guy, right? Mm. He's the... We're going to do Vulcan things the Vulcan way, and that is the way I want my son to do things. I raised my son as a Vulcan. Didn't raise him as a human. Didn't give him a lot of human culture. He's like, I'm traditional. How did Spock's dad feel when Sarek said, I'm going to marry an Earth woman? Oh, well, there's- Ooh, great point. Where's that series? I want that series. Yeah. Because that is not traditional. That is as breaking with – because we've heard all this. I mean, Earth people aren't even allowed – for the wedding ceremony for the you know that we saw in a mock time. Earth yeah. people, we don't share our secrets with Earth people. We have all this, you know, Vulcans, you know, he won't he doesn't want to look sick in front of an Earth person. Yeah. But he chooses to marry an Earth woman. There's I I I mean, look, you want to talk about a rift 
you want to talk about a generation gap. It's not it absolutely the tension isn't just because Spock went to the academy, but if anything, Sarek should absolutely be more connected to Spock because just like Spock did something different uh, on a professional level, mm-hmm. you know, what Sarek did by marrying an Earth woman. I mean, you're right, Steve. Like they should that should have brought them closer, not driven them further apart. Yeah. Well, I think, well, and this is why I say, I think Sarek, who I admire in all these ways, is a bit of a hypocrite. And, and the thing too, is I think what he did, this is what I think Sarek did, is that he made this one choice that is so far outside the boundary of Vulcan culture that he yeah. decided, I have to make all of my other choices and my son conform to the Vulcan culture perfectly mm. to compensate for the fact that I married this earth woman. That's mm. what I think. I uh, see. Now that's something I never mm. thought about, yeah. but you're absolutely right. And, and you know, the, 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 the irony with Sarek's bitterness over Spock chose choosing Starfleet over the Vulcan science Academy. Ultimately Spock proved to be a chip off the old block because just like his grandfather and just like his father, Sarek, Eventually, Spock does become an ambassador, as we will see in the Star Trek The Next Generation two-part episode, Unification. So eventually, it did happen. We've spent a long time on this one scene, but it is a really fascinated scene. And it ends with Kirk saying, They're both stubborn. A human trait, Captain? Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, no, yeah, they are both stubborn. They are. That's absolutely true. He gets a hail from Uhura that they've picked up some sort of signal, but it was unintelligible. Go to alert status form. Begin long range scanning. Kirk out. And then we cut to a big reception with a lot of aliens um, where all the ambassadors are. While we're cutting to the reception, this cocktail reception, we're hearing Kirk do his captain's log where he's basically explaining what the conference on Babel is all about. Mm -hmm. Guys, you know, after all these years, to me, the conference on Babel was like a MacGuffin. Like, it Mm -hmm. didn't really matter to me. It wasn't really integral Mm -hmm. to my enjoyment of this episode, but it absolutely is a MacGuffin. So when I was watching it this time, I did something I never did before. I paused it and I rewound it to the beginning of the captain's lock and I listened to it three times and it finally occurred to me what was at stake <laughs> on this journey to Babel, which is basically to consider the Corridon planets to be admitted to the Federation. Now, some of the races of the Federation, one Corridon kept out and some of them want to be put in and we'll find all of that out throughout the episode as as we find out what's really at stake but like i actually said wait a minute i actually paused it and i rewound it a little bit so i'm like what is coronine like what's what's really going on here and it absolutely is a macguffin and what's a macguffin steve (laughs) Uh, macguffin is a term that i believe comes from hitchcock and it is the thing that people are after that is the engine for the plot but it isn't really important. So it is like a good example is that glowing briefcase in Pulp Fiction. We <laughs> never know what it is. We don't know why people want it. We All we have to know is that people want that thing. You know, and, that is what a MacGuffin is. And we know that Marcellus Wallace is happy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
I will say this though, Scott, I had a similar reaction. Uh, I went back and re-listened to uh, re-watched this section again after I went back because I was like, there are so many connections you can make to this. Remember, this is late 1960s. So what are we talking about here? Is this certain countries that are wanting to be led into the United Nations um, coming from a South American country that was mined for its uh, minerals and resources? We hear later about the crystals, the lithium crystals. The There is so much political intrigue around this system and the amount of money that whoever gets access to this system will be successful. It could help their species become a more powerful species, could help them spread in the universe, have more say in the Federation of Planets. There's a lot that's connected to this a kind of throwaway log almost by yeah, yeah. Kirk here that could lead to real change in the balance of things in the in the galaxy, in, in the Federation of Planets. And I think that's fascinating to explore because certainly that was stuff that was being talked about here in the late 1960s with a number of Latin American and African countries and what have you and changes in Europe, depending on the political philosophy of a certain country or coups or changing in, in military control, things of that nature. So all of that here is played into this uh, particular log from the captain. And, and this is another situation where we're hearing that the mining of dilithium crystals mm. is really crucial to the Federation and, and of course, other other planets. Uh, we heard about it in, of course, Mirror Mirror when uh, you know Kirk was trying to establish a, a deal with the Halkins. And now we're hearing about this planet uh, that has an abundance of dilithium crystals. So basically, then as, of, as is now, dilithium crystals are oil. Exactly. Right. Yes. We have a little bit where uh, McCoy asks Sarek about his age and why <laughs> did he retire? And what's the only reason I want to put it out is you have to go back and you just have to watch Shatner through this entire bit because he's when Sarek gives the precise to the decimal point age. 102.437 precisely, doctor. Kirk has the biggest smile on his face because he's like, that's like his son. You know, you yeah. can just see it all over his face. Mm -hmm. And then we hear... Sarek Vulcan, do you vote to admit Corridon to the Federation? Gav, played by John Wheeler. Now, you wouldn't know it because he is covered by so much makeup. Uh, kudos to Fred Phillips for a great makeup job. So John Wheeler on TV and shows like Green Acres, Love American Style, The Brady Bunch, The Odd Couple. And he was also in the 1978 movie version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. Oh, and Jesus. Wait. <laughs> wait. Yes. Wait. Is he part of the bus or what? Where, yes. Where, yes. He's the, oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's amazing the things you remember and retain random crap. And he was oh, also in. Right. Sorry, Scott. Go ahead. The, the Apple, <laughs> now, look, John, like this, that's what that's why I like to say all these credits, because you never know. It is also yeah. in the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again and mm -hmm. Apollo 13. And this is interesting. So as you see watching Gav. You see that the actor, John Wheeler, has to tilt his head back. And the reason he had to tilt his head back is so that he could see because his oh. eyes, you know, you can't see them through his uh, his makeup and his mask. So John Wheeler had to tilt his head back while he was talking to the delegates, while he's talking to Kirk and Sarek. Now, the good thing about having to tilt his head back is that uh, that established how arrogant the Tolerites, especially Gav, was. So it was a, it was done out of necessity so the actor could see, but it act actually wound up establishing the trait of Gav and the Tolerites as being arrogant. And it is also uh, 
as we talked about, Steve, way back in where no man has gone before, that when Gary Lockwood mm. was wearing those silver contacts, he couldn't see. He had to tilt his head back so he could see even just a little bit. And what that did was establish the arrogance of of Gary Mitchell after he got those godlike powers. So it's a, it's it's done out of necessity, but it actually works out for the best. It's weird because his there's something about his mask that really shouldn't work, but totally works, which is that essentially those are just the eye holes for a cheap mask. Yeah. And his actual eyes are kind of farther back. And it ends up looking kind of cool rather yeah, than looking totally. sort of cheap. Um, and he wants Sarek to give what he's going to vote ahead of time before they get to Babel. And as while I have issues with Sarek as a dad. I love Ambassador Sarek. Mm. Ambassador Sarek is cool as a cucumber yep. and has no problem throwing in a dig, <laughs> you know, like a perfect Vulcan barb. I will know where he stands and why. Tellerites do not argue for reasons. They simply argue. <laughs> and he, Gav continues to come at him and finally Kirk breaks him up. And I think Sarek gives Kirk some respect. You are correct, Captain. Quite logical. And then you hear and you see and you meet for the first time an Andorian. So not only do you have the tile rights introduced in Journey of the Babel, you have the blue Andorians with their antennas. Lead ambassador Shras is played by Reggie Nalder, who was seen in 77 Sunset Strip. It takes a thief, Battlestar Galactica. He was also, gentlemen, you'll appreciate this, on the big screen in The Man Who Knew Too Much and mm-hmm. the Manchurian Candidate. Now, oh, wow. yeah, so this episode, which introduced the Andorians and the Tolerites, and as we found out in later Star Trek shows, it was the humans and the Vulcans and the Tolerites and the Andorians. They were the founding races of the United Federation of Planets. Hmm. <laughs> One thing we hear is that uh, Gav and Sarek had had a debate at the last council session, and I love that Amanda says, Ambassador Gav, lost. Yeah, she does it with pride. She's like, Gav, yeah. lost. And then McCoy is going to make a move, which is so clearly to get a little bit of an edge, a little bit of dirt on Spock. He goes to his mom and says, I know about the rigorous training of the Vulcan youth, but tell me, did he ever run and play like the human children? She smiles, and then Spock looks down. And I'm wondering, did he, does he give a nod to his mom to say, it's okay, you can tell her? Or is he looking down to go, oh, boy, I don't want to hear what this is going to be. I think he's embarrassed. Yeah, I think so, too. I think he's embarrassed. He did have a pet sailor he was very fond of. Solid? Sort of a, a fat teddy bear. And McCoy's reaction. McCoy is thrilled. <laughs> his eyes widen like, What? A teddy bear? Now, of course, we will see uh, his pet, Selah, in the animated series episode Yesteryear, which was written by Dorothy Fontana, which is wonderful. And by the way, leave it to McCoy after a moment of tension with uh, you know, Sarek and, and Gav that McCoy steps in and provides just the right moment for levity. And what levity this is. Well, and it's interesting, at that moment, Sarek says, Excuse me, Doctor. It's been a rather long day for my wife. 
See, this he is just, what I mean. <laughs> well, but why is he saying that? Why is he yeah. saying that? To get out of the he's situation, said, right? Yeah, he wants yeah. he's his wife is embarrassing Spock. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. All right. So you're right. he's trying to pull her out of the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now his way of doing it is totally condescending, but but it is that is why he's doing it. Teddy bear. Not precisely, Doctor. On Vulcan, the teddy bears are alive and they have six inch fangs. Still, you know, McCoy just loving the moment. <laughs> and, and this is what it's funny. You know, we've talked about the difference between A stories and B stories and a, a, a single story that has multiple threads. This is an A story and a B story, but it is an A story and a B story that's integrated so well that they support each other. Because right at this moment, we get word from the bridge that there's an unidentified vessel pacing the Enterprise. And he says very quietly, On my way. All duty personnel on yellow alert. Don't alarm the passengers, Kirk. So we're going to have a very quiet yellow alert. A very quiet we, yellow alert. <laughs> yeah, we're not even going to have blinking yellow lights because that would stress, which makes sense. Identification spot. Sensors indicate the size of a scout ship, but configuration is unfamiliar. We're checking to see if there's any authorized ships in this area, and Starfleet says, no, the Enterprise is the only authorized ship. Get a guess what you Yes, Captain. I shall need more data for my estimate. <laughs> because he will not use the word yes. And, and I love that Kirk's reaction. Like, he smiles. He's like, I hear you. <laughs> and then we cut to, and I find this scene fascinating. You're embarrassed, Spock, this evening. Not even a mother may do that. He is a Vulcan. So here's my feeling. This is where two things are really shown. One is Sarek's love, actual love for Spock. Mm -hmm. And two is his hypocrisy. Because he embarrassed Spock right when he came on the board. He was rude publicly to Spock in front of his captain. And now he is showing that, in fact, he does have different feelings than what he showed. That's what, that's what my opinion about this moment right. is. Right. Or, or, or maybe, you know, just like Spock... Just like it has always been established that Spock is suppressing his emotions and he's suppressing his emotions as a, as a being who is half human, but, but Sarek is a pure Vulcan. So for him to his, suppress his emotion requires, I would say, uh, more doing, but maybe, you know, I like where you're going with this, Steve, that Sarek is more proud of Spock than he's really led on up to this point. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what I referenced earlier, but of course I'm going to disagree with Steve. I don't. There's a difference between being embarrassed for a teddy bear and being um, uh, embarrassed for like a uh, I don't know issues between your dad and being. There is a difference. Like I agree. And so one is emasculating, and one is more a matter of a pride thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see it differently. So yeah, but yes, yeah, Steve is correct that this is that Sarek's version was a version of embarrassment for spock as well but in his mind and in spock's mind it probably fits within the scope of adult male stuff you know whereas yeah. her saying he had a teddy bear is a bit like reducing his yes. adultness to child and that can be embarrassing unfortunately well and i think what where we all agree is that in this scene Sarek shows that he really does in fact care about his son oh yeah yeah absolutely he's a starfleet officer i thought you didn't approve of starfleet and I love how Sarek and Spock will do this too, can create a perfectly logical argument that, <laughs> that excludes emotions. It's not a question of approval. The fact exists. He is in Starfleet. He must command respect if he is to function. Sarek, you're proud of him, aren't you? 
You're showing an almost human pride in your son. This is what I find fascinating about Vulcans, why I think this this is such well-written versions of them, Hmm. is that it is absolutely clear, not only does Spock have emotions, but Sarek has emotions. Yeah. That is absolutely clear. And he is denying those emotions, which to me is illogical. Well, well, going back to going back to to when when, you know, the reason that the Romulans are offshoots of the Vulcans is because the Romulans are the Vulcans who did not suppress their emotions. They they continued their their barbaric ways, whereas the Vulcans chose a logical way of life. Now, it doesn't mean they don't have emotions. It means that they suppress them. And it is harder right. for Spock to suppress them because he has a human side. And, yes. and it is not as difficult for Sarek to suppress them. But they're there. They just suppress them. I, I think you're 100% right. And that's the the way I look at it with the Vulcans always is like if, once you understand the history of Vulcans or, or factor in the history of Vulcans, yep. then you realize that emotions are something they're they're afraid of. And the the to creep back in because they had to work so hard to eliminate that so that they could survive as a species. And then the Romulans became what the Romulans became. But the Vulcans very much have to adhere to this. And yes, they come off as jerks or condescending dicks or whatever you want to say. But it comes from a place of being afraid to regress back to emotion because that's what almost destroyed their entire society. So you can understand why they react this way, why they act this way. There is so much more here. Now, do some of them abuse it to be condescending? And Sarek at times is a bit condescending. Yes. But overall, it is from a genuine like fear that it could destroy them. It does not require pride to ask that Spock be given the respect, which is his jewel. Not as my son, but as Spock. Do you understand? Not really, but it doesn't matter. I love you anyway. And she holds out her fingers. Well, well, Sarek looks disappointed, like, like, oh, love. Okay, here we go. I know. It isn't logical. And then, you know, he touches her with his, with his, with his fingers. And, and smiles. smiles. Yeah, and smiles. Well, it, well, and this is the thing. Sarek does love Amanda. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and Amanda knows that he loves her. And this is the thing. This is the key to the relationship is that Sarek does all these things that are cold and Vulcany and logical and even even a little condescending to her. But she sees the love deep down that that's the truth. And that is who she loves. And Sarek is not comfortable enough with his feelings to just say, yeah, I do love you. Wow. You know, this is this thing that I was thinking about watching it this time. I was like. This is such a comment on the male, the idea of the emotionless male that we are moving beyond as we move into the 70s and into the 80s and start to go like, no, men can actually express their feelings. Sarek is like a, a perfect example of the unemotional classic mm-hmm. male. Yeah, you know? absolutely true. Yeah. And I'd be curious to hear if there's ever an interview where uh, Miss Fontana speaks about that, like it was based on something she experienced growing up from her dad or from mm. – that father she knew so she wanted to kind of encapsulate it because it also shows that he is still a caring guy even though he is having difficulty with his emotions and we're back down with all of our ambassadors and gav is drinking and we see sarek pour himself a glass of wine and take a pill you also have the music cue that gives you uh, the the idea that something's up here Logan, i would speak to you it does seem unavoidable and he pushes him to find what the vote is and finally Sarek says we favor admission you favor why 
Under Federation law, Corridan can be protected. And it's wealth administered for the benefit of its people. Which is interesting, John, in light of what you had said earlier. It is a very anti-exploitative stance mm -hmm. for powerful countries to do towards the less powerful. Right. Which is rare. Corridan has nearly unlimited wealth of dilithium crystals. But it is underpopulated and unprotected. This invites illegal mining operations. And Gav immediately goes, Illegal? You accuse us? And the answer is, yes, he actually Basically, is accusing yes. us. <laughs> Some of your ships have been carrying Corridan to lithium crystals. You call us thieves? And goes to attack Sarek. So he lurches towards Sarek, and Sarek, who is 102, just puts up his hands, puts up his arms just to block Gav. And that sends Gav, like, like back. So yeah. here's Sarek at 102. And just by that very simple motion you're establishing, he's strong. And the Vulcans that we already see are strong. And dangerous. Because it isn't just a strength move. It's also, he is cool as a cucumber. Right, he's He is cool. so unthreatened by this. Like, it is like nothing that he's dealing with this guy. Whatever arguments you have between yourself is your business. My business is running the ship. And he says this really firmly. And as long as I command, there will be order. Of course, Captain. And then this moment, again, I love Ambassador Sarek. He is the coolest guy. There will be payment for your slander, Sarek. Threats are illogical. And payment is usually expensive. That's a great line. So Gav exits, and then Kirk looks back towards Sarek. And then you cut to the next scene. After this altercation between Sarek and Gav, and there's Gav hanging upside down, dead in the Jeffrey's tube. So whatever happened to him, uh, it looks like it was pretty violent. Um, and he calls up to uh, Kirk to inform him that he found the ambassador. And that is the Hold end on. of Act One. A shirtless yeah. Kirk. Let's For no reason at yes. all, a shirtless <laughs> Kirk. <laughs> yeah, see, um, shirtless Kirk, yeah, just like in uh, Deadly Years. <laughs> by the way, that's a long first act. Mm -hmm. That is a long first act. That's right. How was he killed? His neck was broken by an expert. And Kirk asks, who aboard would have that knowledge? And, and Spock McCoy, responds. McCoy looks at Spock. He already knows who that, that answer. McCoy look, doesn't answer. He looks up at Spock. He, so um, you think that McCoy knows the answer to this? Yes. You think that McCoy knows that the Vulc that Vulcans are mm -hmm. able to do this? Or was he just looking to see what his answer would be. I it never occurred to me that McCoy knew that Spock, you know, applied this thing. That's what I thought, particularly watching it this time. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, because All he right. says, like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I wonder because he says, like, I don't know the Vulcan physiology. So would he yeah. be able to know this stuff? I don't know, but I think more that he's looking. I, I, I'm more in the Scott camp, but I, I can totally see why you would get that, Steve, for sure. On Vulcan, the method is called Tal Shia. Tal Shia. Is that what it Tal Shia. Is? Tal Shia. Tal Shia. It's yeah. going to take you years to learn to pronounce it correctly, so don't even... <laughs> Spark, a short time ago, I broke up an argument between Gav and your father. Indeed, Captain. Interesting. And McCoy's like, interesting? Do you realize that that makes uh, Sarek the most likely suspect? Vulcans do not approve of violence. Are you saying he couldn't have done it? No, Captain. I'm merely saying it would be illogical to kill without reason. But if he had a reason, could he have done it? If there were a reason, my father is quite capable of killing, logically 
and efficiently. It's great because what we're now into is we're into a whodunit with Spock's father is the main suspect. Mm -hmm. And and because both Spock and Sarek are very logical, they won't deny the possibility. Yeah, that's logical that my dad would be. He's the main suspect. Yes. We go back to uh, Sarek's quarters. Amanda is there. Sarek, I'm sorry to disturb you. I must speak to your husband. Well, he's been gone for some time. It's his habit to meditate in private before retiring. And that's when Sarek enters. And I think Mark Leonard does a great job of looking a bit under the weather, shook, weak. Ambassador, the Tellerite Gab has been murdered. His neck was broken, Mr. Ambassador, by what Spock describes as Tal Shaya. And I love that, that for the first tell him about the this murder and Sarek's response is exactly what Spock's response is when they tell Spock about the altercation with Sarek and Gav. He says, Indeed. Interesting. Yeah. And for a minute, you actually think that maybe Sarek did do this. Where were you during the past hour? Captain, you're not accusing him. Mother, if only on circumstantial evidence, he is a logical suspect. I quite agree. Which I love because they're illogical. Yes, this is logical. I am the suspect. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, then Sarek lies. Then where were you during the hour? In private meditation, Captain. This whole idea that Vulcans don't lie is just so not true all the time because he said I was in private meditation. It's like, no, you were having like a heart attack. Mm-hmm. That's where you act- what was actually going on with you. Um, and he says, uh, Spock will tell you that such a meditation is a personal experience not to be discussed, especially not with Earthmen. <laughs> and Kirk is saying, well, that's a very convenient excuse when Sarek goes down. Sarek has, an, a, has a heart attack right in front of them, which basically gives him an alibi that it couldn't have been him. But again, like I said at the top of this episode, there is a lot going on in journey to be able <laughs> uh we're on the bridge and spock is at his station and kirk goes up clearly looking concerned says spock and spock is all about the business yes captain i get sensor readings of tritritanium from the alien ship's hull. i'm sorry about your phone spock's reply yes it could adversely affect our mission what do you think about spock saying that at that moment well i think it's just typical of spock that he is not going to to give in to emotion and he's going to like just in the, the, the previous episode, bread and circuses, when McCoy wanted to thank Spock for saving his life, Spock's response is basically like, yeah, well, you know, if we, if I didn't, uh, we would have lost a very valuable crew member just like back in the naked time <laughs> or, or rather balance of terror. When uh, styles thanks Spock for saving his life, Spock says, I, I just was saving uh, an officer from doing their t- so they could keep doing their job. I'm capable of no other emotion. So Spock is basically doing what he has always done. He's providing a logical uh, reason for why, doing what he did. And he's, his motive for his responses. yeah, uh, this could affect the mission. He's mm-hmm. totally being in character with his response. This is exactly the kind of response that we should have expected from Spock, even if we don't exactly approve of it. I'm really glad you brought up Bread and Circuses because I think it's a similar thing because I think it's more than that. Because in Bread and Circuses, part of why he's so cold to McCoy is because he actually is emotional because he is worried about Kirk and it is his worry, his emotional reaction that causes him to act more logically to cover up. I think he is 
because uh, there's a difference between I'm really in control of my emotions. I'm totally cool. I'm just thinking about the mission and I'm pretending that I'm in control of my emotions and just thinking about the mission when really I'm really messed up and worried about my dad. Mm-hmm. And I think he is really messed up and worried about his dad and pretending to be, to be just about the mission. I don't know where I stand with it. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, I think he's like, I'm not going to talk about it with you. I think that's another part of it, too. That's, yes, absolutely. Right? I feel like it's, you know, it's it's our thing, man. Aren't you worried about him? Worry is a human emotion, Captain. I accept what has happened. And then Uhura picks up a last part of, the tra- of another transmission. And this transmission was going into the body of this ship. Mm. It's somebody on board the Enterprise. And then, and it's something we've never seen before, he catches Uhura in a mistake. Lieutenant, you've got your sensor located on a wide beam of established receiver on board this vessel. Tighten your field to the interior of the ship. Yes, sir. She's not going to make that mistake again. <laughs> um, we're in sickbay. Well, as far as I can tell from instrument readings, our prime suspect has a malfunction in one of the heart valves. It's similar to a heart attack in a human. And this moment is great. Mr. Sorry, has he had any previous attacks? No. Yes. This is classic male pride stuff. Yeah, he had three other attacks. Why didn't you tell me? There was nothing you could have done. Like, that is a logical reason why you didn't tell your wife. It could be that you didn't want to face the reality of your failing health, Mm. you know, and that's why you didn't talk about it. Mm. And I love that we hear that surgery is going to be really, really dangerous because of the Vulcan heart, and Spock comes up with what operation McCoy should do I suggest that a surgenic open heart procedure would be the logical approach. Yes, unquestionably. Bones, what about it? Well, I'm glad somebody's asking me something around here. <laughs> and now we get to the key problem: is that the procedure they're talking about would take a lot of blood. And not only that, but his blood is very rare, even for a Vulcan. It's T negative, which I will say, yeah, that is some rare blood. My blood is T negative, Doctor. Um, what we haven't mentioned is that Nurse Chapel, of course, is here. We've run a number of blood tests on Mr. Spock. It isn't true Vulcan blood either. It uh, has human blood elements in it. Watch her when she says this line, because those human blood elements is what she's in love with. Mm. Like you can see her love in that when she says that line. Even you couldn't give that much blood, Spock. It would kill you. They start to estimate the odds, and Amanda says, please Please don't. Um, it's later, we're in the lab, and we start talking about some drug that was given to Rigelians, and Rigelians have very similar physiology to Vulcans, and it makes the blood basically get produced over time. That's experimental, but used successfully on test subjects on Rigel 5. Which is, I guess, one planet away from where Roger, uh, Rigel Hengus was. <laughs> Spock, we would need such great amounts of blood that even if the drug worked on the Vulcans as well as the Rigelian, which I'm doubtful. It would still drain Sarek to a critical level. Plus the fact I've never operated on a Vulcan before. Um, I think McCoy is being smartly cautious. Mr. Chappell, I underwent a physical examination last week. Would you pull those records, please? And I think Chapel knew that he was going to volunteer this, because she says... Already pulled. You're perfectly healthy, Mr. Spock. What is that gut? You're going to use it on yourself, a transfusion from you to your father. As of now... You know, where we're at right now is that Sarek needs a blood transfusion and Spock is going to to be the, the, the donor. I can't sanction it. And I refuse to it. I won't risk both of you. Then you automatically condemn Sarek to death. 
This has set up a perfect like Star Trekky choice. Like, what do we do? How do we how do we handle this this decision? It, it occurred to me while watching Journey to Babel that there is story wise, structurally, there's a, there's a very similar aspect of it too. Of all things, okay, just go with me here. I mud, and here's why. <laughs> I, okay, hang on. So listen to this. <laughs> like so that. in I mud, uh, it is established that. That Mud is going to leave the Enterprise crew on the planet so he can escape on the Enterprise with the androids. So that's the plan. That is the plan. Right. And up to this point in Journey to Babel, Sarek needs an operation and Spock is going to be the blood donor. That's the plan. And right. both of these episodes have unexpected twists that both work in different ways. In mm-hmm. I Mud, the androids decide that they're going to leave mud on the planet so they can take over the galaxy and quote unquote serve humanity and protect humanity from itself. But then something is going to happen as we are going to cut to in a great cut that is going to change the dynamic of this episode. And this is just one of the reasons why there are so many great moments where there are turns and twists that abruptly shift the direction of the episode and in in a way that it makes the episode even better. 100% agree. And what we cut to is right in the middle of a fight. We don't see how the fight started. We don't see where these guys came from. We don't know what the fight is about, but we see Kirk going toe to toe with an Andorian who has a knife, starts with that classic Kirk roll back and throw them flip. And then Kirk you know, gets slammed up against the wall. He dodges the knife. He knees the guy. The guy goes down. And then Shatner does the weirdest move. He r- jumps like it puts his feet on the wall like he's going to jump off and body slam the guy or something. And he lands right on his butt in a way that looks really as a guy who's taken some falls. That fall looked really, really painful. Two things to note about the scene. You know, Steve, you say that we don't know how this fight started, but if the scene was. Well, if the scene aired the way it was filmed, you would know how it mm. started. Kirk okay. was walking down the corridor to his quarters. He's on deck five, and the Andorian jumps him. That's how the fight actually starts. Oh, but I think hmm. it's far more dramatic, as you pointed out in other episodes, where you enter into a situation that is already underway to see right. that the fight is already going on. The other thing, Steve, I agree uh, some of the uh, stunt work in this scene is a bit uh, sloppy, shall we say, but it is worth noting that that is all Shatner. It is not yeah. some obvious stunt person, you know, where you, you know, you have the shot further back and it's clearly like, you know, like, uh, you know, Jay Jones or some other stunt person instead of Shatner. But that's all that's all Shatner. And then something happens in this fight scene that I think is sh- absolutely shocking and unexpected, which is that Captain Kirk who is one, basically every fight scene we've ever seen him in, gets stabbed in the back. Oh, and that looks like a violent, that is a violent stab. Yeah. It's like when Merrick gets stabbed by the pro console mm. at the Very end similar, of yeah. Red and Circuses. Like, like, like you, you feel that go into Kirk's back. It's, it's, a, it's a violent stab. And he flips the guy, manages to knock him out, pulls, touches his back and pulls out a really bloody hand. There's a lot of blood. Yep. And calls up to the bridge. I've been attacked by an Andorian. Security. Security team. Captain. And then he goes down. Captain. Captain. He passes out, and that is the end of Act Two. 
Let me throw this out there. Yes. Because you know me, I'm always looking at things from a weird place. <laughs> but we all know about the hubris of William Shatner and the struggles on set. And listen, I got to tell the truth. Do you think he saw this thing? It was like, hey, Gene, it's cool that Leonard is getting to sacrifice himself for his dad. I was going to. I need to also be sacrificing my life in some mm. way, shape, or form for this situation. So can we write a little subplot where I get stabbed for no reason at all and have me be sacrificing myself and my life uh, so that Spock can sacrifice himself for his dad and blah, blah, blah. So I, it just seems odd to have two of these guys sacrificing their lives at the same time in this whole situation. So uh, it struck me this time around. I may be way off base, but it just struck me this time around. So. I have two thoughts about this. First of all, it never occurred to me, but I actually think that's very possible. Even if, <laughs> even if Shatner didn't go to them, I think they, it's very possible that they're writing the script and went, this is getting real Spock heavy. We need to find some stuff for Bill, you yeah. know, like that's very possible. And it is also possible from everything we've heard about Shatner that he went and said, Hey, we need more for me. But the other thing I want to say is even if that's the case, that totally makes this episode better. That's mm -hmm. why I, I, think I that love this. Was, thing. Yeah. I see again, just to, you know, what, what I love about this episode is that the stakes keep getting higher and higher. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got the personal stakes, you've got the conflict between Spock and Sarek, you've got these delegates aboard the Enterprise, you've got the conflict between Sarek mm -hmm. and Gav. Now you've got uh, Kirk attacked by, you know, what appears to be an Andorian. And I absolutely think that this was all part of the plan from the beginning because, mm. you know, everything that I read about the making of this episode, there was. There was never anything about, oh, we need to add a scene to make it more more about Kirk as well. Uh, that was always part of the plan. It's a bad wound. Punctured left lung. Centimeter so lower, it had gone through the heart. And the stats on Sarek are dropping. Your father is much worse. There's no longer a choice. I have to operate immediately. We can begin as soon as you're prepared. So McCoy is turned around on this operating thing. No, doctor. Why? My first responsibility is to the ship. There's the turning point. Mm -hmm. You know, up to this point, you Spock was making a very logical argument to Amanda and to McCoy why it was essential for him to be the donor, yeah. even though it could kill him. And now the stakes have changed because his commanding officer, Kirk, has been incapacitated at a time when there are more than 100 delegates on board and the Enterprise is being chased by an unknown vessel. So there is no way at this point that Spock can choose his family over his duty. He is making a decision that, no, his first duty is to his, to his duty and to the ship, and he is going to take command because Kirk cannot do it and no one else is capable of commanding. You know, nobody knows where Sulu is. Scotty is on the ship, but we never see him, even though we certainly hear about him. And that's where Spock is now. I almost half expected Scott, Spock to turn around and be like, Scotty, doctor, please. And then <laughs> I, I half expected that uh, to, to do this time. So, you know, I'd forgotten what his reaction was. But yeah, all this stuff is happening. A lot to take on. Um, and I love that he uses the word personal privilege, which is really interesting now to hear in, in, in 2022, that word privilege, you know, a personal privilege 
nowhere in the rules does it say I can do that for a personal privilege. So interesting decision by him. And he's adhering to his code. And his father would understand that. So we're back at the brig looking at the prisoner and we see the leader of the Andorian delegation. He's Telef, a minor member of my stuff. And Spock is still on logic. He says, There is no logic in Thelev's attack upon the captain. There is no logic in Gav's murder. I think the Andorian is a really interesting character. Tras is the Andorian ambassador. His response, I always liked his response. He goes, Perhaps you should forget logic and devote yourself to motivations of passion or gain. Those are reasons for murder. And that's where I wrote in my notes. That's just great writing. The next scene is in Spock's quarters. I think, again, this is a critical scene in all of Star Trek. And one of the great things about this scene for me is there are two people that strongly disagree and they both have perfect, nobody's right here. You know what I mean? I mean, I agree with one side more than the other, but but like they have real passion and disagree for real good reasons. And that is Spock and his mother. Spock, you must turn command over to somebody else. And she's panicking. She is, yeah. she's definitely panicking. And, and my, by the way, the, like if there was ever an episode that Scotty should have been in, it should have been this one. I mean, he's, he's referenced just imagine. So we have seen a few times just in the second season, just how great Scotty is at command when Kirk and Spock are not even on the enterprise. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're going to have Scotty, anybody in command during a situation like this, Scotty's the perfect person to do it. And I think Scotty would have been, he would have been fantastic. But of course, Spock will not, would not pass command to Scotty. And even Kirk doesn't when he's back on the bridge later. But, but imagine if James Dewan was in this episode and you had a scene where Scotty confronts him, like, dude, just let me drive the ship. I'll, I'll take care of it. Just do what you got to do. Like there could have been a great scene in there uh, and a, a great moment for Jimmy to have a great scene with, with Leonard Nimoy. And it's just a shame. And of course, you know, the episode has enough going on, you know, there's only so much they can fit in. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, but, but you know what? It just, it's a, it was a missed opportunity. It could have been, could have been a really dramatic moment between Scotty and Spock. Any competent officer can command this ship. Only you can give your father the blood transfusions that he needs to live. Spock's reply any competent officer can command this ship under normal circumstances. The circumstances are not normal. We are carrying over 100 valuable Federation passengers. We're being pursued by an alien ship. We are subject to possible attack. There has been murder and attempted murder on board. I cannot dismiss my duties. How do you feel about this? Where are you? What's your stance in, in, in this argument? This is where he most resembles Sarek in this moment. Because it is a little bit of his hubris that makes him think that he's the only one who could possibly handle this situation with all this stuff going on. There's a little bit of hubris here, uh, just like Sarek has at times himself. And so here I find that going to a conference when you know you've got heart issues, you know you've got cardiovascular issues, there's an arrogance in that. There's a conceit in that. I'm the only one who can do it. You know, it's that kind of thing. And we've survived a whole world where other people have stepped in when other people have not been able to do something. And so there's this kind of arrogance here from Spock and, and pushing back. And I and I wonder if this is Spock trying to prove himself to his dad in this, right? He hasn't, they still haven't patched things up. 
He's stuck kind of in this place. And so in his way, he's acting in a way that although it adheres to what he believes, it also adheres to something he knows his father would understand. So in a way, is he trying to kind of impress his father or is he not wanting to confront the situation himself and wants to kind of be diverted by work? I don't know. But there's a lot in that answer that I think you can explore emotionally with uh, with with Spock. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I, that's a very interesting perspective, John, one that I definitely see where you're, where you're coming from in terms of, of Spock, uh, you know, maybe trying to impress his father, but what's to impress if his father will die? So that's why I think ultimately Spock is really just doing the logical thing here. He's really, really doing the logical thing because he made his logical points for being the donor until Mm -hmm. Kirk got stabbed. And now he has to not only take command of the Enterprise, but take command of a very volatile situation with so many people, so many delegates uh, on board the Enterprise and the Enterprise being followed by a a ship that that they don't know what it is, but it's Mm -hmm. not good. So uh, I think it's definitely logic on Spock's part. So I think, John, that perspective of trying to prove something to your father and the sort of pridefulness in it, I had not considered that. I think it's really interesting. I honestly think the fact that Sarek is going to die, could die, is neither here nor there. I think there, there's a section in The Unbearable Lightness of Being that I've always loved where he basically talks about that we walk around with all sorts of people living in our minds mm-hmm. that we're trying to prove ourselves to. And sometimes it's that girl you wanted to date in high school, and sometimes it's your dad, and sometimes, and some of those people, you might never even see them. They might never even see what you do. My dad's been dead 11 years, and I'm still trying to prove things to him. You know I what mean, I mean? That scene in Amadeus when he's dancing around after his father has died in front of his father's portrait. That's a yeah. great encapsulation that those spirits never leave us. They never leave. Oh, yeah. They never that that being said, I am a hundred percent team Spock. I think this is exactly what his duty is. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen over and over again on not that Scotty's not great, but there were times where if Kirk wasn't in command, the enterprise is going to be destroyed. If well, you're the captain of the ship, you it, know it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's exclusive though. Just because it's his duty yeah. doesn't also mean that he isn't trying to impress his dad. And that's what I I absolutely agree that it is his duty. It's very much his point of view, but could yeah. also be a little bit about trying to impress his father too. A hundred percent agree. Duty. Your duty is to your father. And I love that Spock says, I know. This must take precedence. If I could give the transfusion without loss of time or efficiency, I would. And then he says, and this is, I think, a hundred percent true. Sarek understands my reason. Sarek understands my reason. Yeah. Well, that, there you go. That just proves Steve's point. That Sarek would approve of Spock's, uh, Spock's motive, or, or that's of Spock's. Well, it kind of proves John's point too, though, because he's thinking about his father's approval. Right, you know, right. in that yeah. moment, yeah. you're right. I think we're all right, is what I think. So there I love it uh. when we're all right. <laughs> well, I don't. It's not human. And Spock has a reaction to that. I love his response. Oh, that's not a dirty word. You're human too. Let that part of you come through. Your father's dying. I, there's so much here because what we've watched is Spock trying to reconcile with his emotions and his human side and all that stuff for, uh, you know, a season and a half of Star Trek. Yeah. And he then says, Mother, how can you have lived on Vulcan so long, married a Vulcan, raised a son on Vulcan without understanding what it means to be a Vulcan? First of all, that is really good writing. That's a great, I'm telling you, this yeah. episode has such great writing in it. Well, if this is what it means, I don't want to know. Strong statement. 
because she's accepted so much about she allowed Spock to be raised as a Vulcan entirely. Yeah. She's accepted her relationship to Sarek in a very Vulcan way, mm-hmm. but this she cannot accept. It means to adopt a philosophy, a way of life, which is logical and beneficial. We cannot disregard that philosophy merely for personal gain, no matter how important that gain might be. I love that he says that is logical and beneficial. Mm. I think that is a really, that's, that's a word we haven't heard. We've just heard logical mostly. Mm-hmm. logical and beneficial nothing is as important as your father's life can you imagine what my father would say if i were to agree if i were to give up command of this vessel jeopardize hundreds of lives risk interplanetary war all for the life of one person there you go you know what that made me think of what's that the needs of the many outweigh mm-hmm. the needs of the few or the one or the one yeah. wow that's great That's great. And then I love that she changes tactics. We go to this completely different place. We're not talking about Logic or Sarek or anything else. She says a story about him as a child. When you were five years old and came home stiff-lipped, anguished, because the other boys tormented you, saying that you weren't really Vulcan, I watched you, knowing that Inside, the the human part of you was crying. And I cried too. There must be some part of me in you. Some part that I still can reach. And when Amanda reminds Spock of his difficult childhood, I thought of the moments we see in the animated series episode yesteryear. Mm -hmm. And I thought, especially because John brought it up, the moments that we see all this go down in the 2009 Star Trek movie. So something that we hear Amanda reference in Journey to Babel, we see in the animated series and the 2009 movie, which I think is just great how they all complemented each other. This moment and what she says next is so painful. And particularly having done this show with you, Scott, and like feeling I've gotten even closer to Spock and 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 how much more complex his emotions really are, mm-hmm. then it's just really rough. She says, Being Vulcan is more important to you than you'll stand there speaking rules and regulations from Starfleet and Vulcan philosophy and, and let your father die. And, and I'll hate you for the rest of my life. That hurts, but not as much as what's about to happen. <laughs> Mother. We'll go to him now, please. I cannot. And here it comes. She slaps him. And that slap that Amanda gives Spock, that slap that Jane Wyatt gives Leonard Nimoy, looks as painful as it sounded. It's a real, you know, J- John, you've been slapped on stage, I'm sure. Yeah. I've yep. been slapped on stage. There are some stage slaps that are very stagey. And there's yeah. sometimes where you just get whacked. This is a whack. That's oh, a yeah. whack. Yeah. She really so, slaps him. And, and then she walks out the door. And this is, I think, one of the most vulnerable moments that we see Spock throughout this series. Amanda walks out. The door closes. Spock walks up to the door. And he puts his hand on the door. Mm. I mean, 
I, I mean, I, the door should have opened, but that's okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the way he puts his hand on the door and, and he, and, and Spock has uh, his back to the camera. So you don't see his face, yeah. but I don't think you needed to the gesture, the motion that he is reaching out by, by touching the door like that. Like when hell's when else have we seen Spock so vulnerable other than, you know, when he was affected by a disease in the naked time yeah. or affected by the spores in, you know, this side of paradise. And certainly we've seen him, you know, really, really struggling to control his emotions in a mock time. Yeah. But the vulnerability that we see here, one episode after McCoy really leans into him in bread and circuses. Uh, there's a lot of barriers that are being broken down within Spock, and this is a big, big one. It's funny that you mentioned Naked Time. Do you remember what he says in that scene in Naked Time, the first thing he says to Kirk? Yes, he says, my mother, I could never tell her I loved her. Yep, and he still right. didn't. This is where I go like, I wish Spock had shared more with Amanda. I wish, you know, and I, and I understand, I think, because, and I think like, now, having watched it and my feelings about Spock at this yeah. point, is I think he shows real cowardice in this scene. Not that he's not making the right decision. I think he is making the right decision. Okay. But he doesn't say, she says, is there any human in you? And I wish he said there is. But, yes. But or I love you. But he doesn't. But that's he's still not capable of telling his mom he loves her. Right. But, but that's what's great about the character. That's the tragedy of the character, inherent in the character. That's great. I think that's. I, I love it. No, no, I. It's yeah. a great scene, mm -hmm. but I do think Spock shows cowardice here. I think he's still not at the place. You think it's I think not so. he, he's still working it through. I, I think that's a, I think that's a tough characteristic to put on a situation where he's still navigating as a man in his what twenties, what his or thirties maybe, what his how to because he has you know how to kind of because that's a lot of baggage, man. That's a sure. lot. Agreed. Of Agreed. And be able to unpack well, there, it in that well, that, moment. That's it, John. There is a lot of Spock is carrying an incredible amount of baggage. And there's all this still, shit going on. His there's all this going on. There's and and that I mean, look, that is absolutely to tie it back to that moment in the briefing room, yeah. in the naked time. As soon as Kirk walks in and he says to Kirk, like you said, Steve, my mother, I could never tell her I loved her. We've got four minutes, maybe five. An Earth woman. Living on a planet where love, emotion, bad taste. You know, like he really, like even back then, this was this was a an issue with his with his parents, with his mother that affected him, and that he's been carrying it all this time throughout his time on the Enterprise with Kirk. That has always been in the back of his mind, yeah. way in the back of his mind, suppressed until a disease brought it to the fore. And now there she is in front of him saying go to him or or I'll I'll hate you for the rest of my life and she slaps him i mean that moment that gesture of uh, touching the door like that putting his hand on the door that is not somebody suppressing their emotion at all that is someone who for a moment is giving into his emotion because he just can't take it in with the pressure has just mounted so much within him where he just cannot suppress it but no one else sees it well, and this, again, goes to why the journey of Spock is so much the journey of Star Trek. And that because I think Spock that wakes up after mind melding with V'ger would be able to tell his mommy loves her. Or definitely Spock after Star Trek Four, you know, who's re-come back together. Right. That's a Spock who would, would have told Amanda he loves her. 
Well, well, don't forget in Star Trek Four, at the end of Star Trek Four, what does Spock tell Sarek? Oh. Tell tell my mother I feel fine. Yeah. <laughs> Which is his way of saying, I love you. It's going to be real. I know uh, Scott and I have talked about it. And John, of course, you're welcome to join us. Is We're going to hit the rest of the movies. You know, I whether can't it's, wait to talk about yeah, the rest of the movies. Cinephiles, yeah. Enterprise incidents, or both. Yeah, It's, it's going to be time. And it'll be real interesting, particularly to talk about Star Trek 3 and 4. F- 5, well, whatever. Um, we're back <laughs> in sick bay. Kirk is waking up with some jokes. He tries to get up. He's obviously in a lot of pain. I'll let that be a lesson to you. Just lie there and be happy you're still alive. How's Sarek? Not good. I can only operate. And Kirk just assumed that they were already doing the operation. When you became injured, Spock assumed command. He's going to stay there till you get back on your feet, even if it costs Sarek his life. Regulations. I can't damn him for his loyalty, but I'm not going to let him commit patricide. And he gets up. And this, John, whether it was Shatner who asked for it or it was, you know, whoever came up with this idea, him going, going, I am in incredible pain and I'm going to fake it until get Spock to come down and do the surgery. That's a great idea. It's a great idea. And this is also a sacrifice because Kirk has been told, you know, if you get up, you could begin to bleed again. He has been told that he has a punctured lung. And that one centimeter uh, in another direction, it would have gone right through his heart. The last thing he should be doing is getting on his feet and putting himself in a tense situation. And that is exactly what he is going to risk doing in an effort to get Spock to tend to his family and his father. I'll convince Spock I'm all right and order him to report here. As soon as he leaves the bridge, I'll turn command over to Scotty and report to my quarters. Mm-hmm. There's Scotty again. <laughs> and then we get on the bridge, and this is, you know, we've said it over and over again. Shatner is such a good actor. What he does here, the layers he does. I love yep. that Uhura looks up at him and he gives her a little like gesture yeah. to like stay put. Yeah. I've got <laughs> I'm taking all of my energy just to do this one thing that I have to do. And Spock turns around and looks at him and it's like Captain. And he shows a bit of emotion. Shock. Captain. I'll take over, Mr. Spock. Report to Sick Bay with Dr. McCoy. Well, and he's really looking at him real carefully. Yeah. And Kirk with a big smile and just a whole bunch of Kirk charisma says, get out, Spock. Like, don't worry. I got this. It's okay. I'm all right. And Spock gives him kind of one last look and then heads out with McCoy. And you can see the moment they get to the turbo lift, Kirk starts to say, call Mr. Scott to the bridge. (laughs) And at that moment, Captain, the alien whistle is moving closer. Lay that order. I'll stay here. That's great. It's a great setup. It's a great setup. And just as that that happens, Kirk, without showing pain in doing it, kind of sits up. He forgets about the fact that he's in a colossal amount of pain because now he's being – He's being Kirk. He's being the captain again. He's This is the guy who said, give me the shot when he was dying of old age in the deadly years. He is mm-hmm. putting his ship up, uh, in front of everything at this moment. And then Uhura, who has reconfigured her sensor, whatever they are, says, Captain, I'm picking up the alien signal again, but it's coming from inside the Enterprise. Specific origin. From the brig, sir. We're in sickbay and McCoy is starting the operation. I like that Sarek's got that. Now we see that big metal thing over the for the surgery. If there was ever an episode where we see that McCoy is really a good doctor, Steve, it's this one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely true. 
In the brig, security is searching the Andorian who kind of attacks. They stun him. And when he falls down, his antenna pops off. I got to give props to the security in this episode because it was security who called the yeah. captain when they found Gav murdered in the uh, Jeffrey's tube. And now they got two security guards in the brig and the uh, the spy, let's not call him an Andorian because he's clearly not even an Andorian anymore, tries to make a move and they stun him and they find the transmitter. So big props to the red shirts yeah. in Journey to Babel. Let's and give none it of up them get this. killed. None of them die. And we go to red alert because we are now under attack. Target, Mr. Chekhov. Moving away. Turning now. He's coming around again. Fire as he passes, Ensign. And we open fire on this ship and totally miss it because this thing's way too fast. And the other thing that's happening is apparently all the ambassadors are calling up to the bridge saying, what the hell's going on? Tell them to take a good guess, but clear that board, Lieutenant. I like that. I'm going to lose both of these men. And that brings us to the end of Act 3. Act four, you can see that Kirk is sweating, he's hurting, he's in tons of pain, and they keep getting hit. Um, And now they've decided to lock their photon torpedoes into the widest scatter shot. They're just going to shoot them like a shotgun, and they miss. And on the sickbay, the systems are are lost because they're losing power. And Amanda is off to the side, and she's looking very worried. I got to say, the the acting in this episode, all of it, (laughs) Whether it's uh, Shatner, Nimoy, Jane Wyatt, uh, Mark Leonard, uh, everyone in this episode, uh, it's such great acting. It's such great writing. And that, I mean, it's just one of the, some of the reasons why this episode is just really is a top tier standout. Absolute classic. Well, yeah. and there's also the, you know, like I was saying about this is an A story and a B story. The A story is Spock and his father and his family. And the B story is this uh, ship and the spy and stuff like that. But the things going on in the A story make the B story way more intense and more exciting. And things going on in the B story, like Kirk getting stabbed, make the, the A story much more intense. And so they're supporting each other rather than, again, in sometimes some of the later lesser Star Trek shows, they were just two separate stories that really were had nothing to do with each other. Right. So on the bridge, shields are starting to buckle. In sickbay, Sarek, who had had a heart attack and his had his, his heart had stopped, is now back. And then onto the bridge comes our Andorian spy, Thalen. Friends out there are good. They'll have to destroy this ship to win. That was intended from the beginning, Captain. You're not Andorian, who are you? Thalev, played by William O'Connell, was a familiar face on TV shows like Thriller, The Twilight Zone, Petticoat Junction, and Mannix. And on the big screen... He was in some pretty good movies uh, in the late 60s and 70s. He was in Ice Station Zebra, High Plains Drifter, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Every Which Way But Loose, and its sequel, Any Which Way You Can. I love how he's very clearly looking around. I think he's a really good actor. Engineering, this is the captain. That power on the port side except for phaser banks. Half of the the bridge goes dark. At my signal, that starboard power. Kirk out. And he starts to question the Andorian. So Kirk, who's in tons of pain, has enough energy to A, come up with a new tactic to fight this super fast ship, and B, interrogate the prisoner. Who are you? Find your own answers, Captain. You haven't long to live. You're a spy. 
surgically altered to pass as an Andorian, planted in the ambassador's party to use terror and murder to disrupt us and prepare for this attack. Speculation, Captain. And now we cut power to the starboard side, and it's real dark. What are you doing? You speculate. So a couple things to note here is that Kirk really, really has faith in Chekhov's abilities to send Mm. him from navigation to the science station and then back to navigations. And we know that that Chekhov is uh, is good at the science station because the first time that we actually see Chekhov mm. in a produced episode is in Cat's Paw, which, as we learned, is actually a flashback because of the star date when it takes <laughs> when it takes place. But we also hear in Humor's Adonais that uh, Spock is contaminating this boy Jim. But the other thing to note about this moment is by playing dead. What does this scene remind you of, guys? Uh, balance of terror, hundred percent. Balance of terror, exactly. Because yep. if it worked before, it'll work again. And then the Andorian figures it out. You're baiting him. You're trying to lure him in. Which totally works. Yeah. The ship has come closer and closer. Hold your fire, Mister Chekhov. Range closing. Seventy-five thousand kilometers. Fire. And they got him. And this is one I, I I like the redone effects on this one. Oh, the redone job. effects are great. Yeah, they really yeah. are. First of all, because you know you actually have the uh, the Orion ship you have some detail to it. It's not some flashing light. And by the way, folks, the reason that the Orion ship, the spy ship, was a flashing light in the original uh, visual effects is because the producers knew that they had an episode that was really really great. And it was shot later in the season, but they wanted it to air earlier in the season. And the only way they were going to do that is that they turned Journey to Babel into a rush job. And that meant they cannot build a model for the Mm. Orion spy ship. And they resorted to just using the light that they did. Mm. Interesting. Mm. I always thought that the light when I was a kid was kind of just showed how fast that thing was. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Lieutenant... Open the hailing frequency. They wish to surrender. And the ship explodes. Relay to Starfleet Command. Tell them we have a prisoner. Only temporarily, Captain. See, I had orders to self-destruct, too. Slow poison. And this is just a little detail, but it's just a little detail that makes the moment more interesting, which is he incorrectly predicts how much time he has. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anticipate another 10 minutes of life. And then he staggers, and the last line is, miscalculated. And he dies. Well, let me ask you a question. So we're going to find out in a, in a second that this is an Orion. Okay. So is this the same Orion that we see dancing to seduce Captain Pike in the cage? The green Orion slave girl? Uh, until you said it, I never occurred to me, but yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, we know that there's some weird stuff that goes on in Orion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and we see, we do see the Orions again in, uh, or at least one of them in uh, Whom Gods Destroy. Yeah. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so it's a character who, who's still around. So, uh, just something I'm just wondering, you know, for everyone listening, do you think the Orion 
the Ryans we hear about or see briefly, even though he's painted blue uh, to look like an Andorian, are these the same Orions that we saw in the cage in the menagerie? Uh, and we know that they can dance. So, I mean. <laughs> and apparently they can fight. And they can fight too. <laughs> are you quite through shaking the ship around? Spock, sorry, how are they? And, you know, McCoy can't resist stalling. Well, I don't mind telling you, you sure make it difficult for a surgeon trying to... Bones! Captain, come in. And it's funny that Spock tries to tell the information that he has, and Kirk says what happened, and then Spock says what we've been talking about, that this is an Orion, and that their plan was basically to start a big war over this planet while they could sneak onto the planet, steal dilithium crystals, and sell them to both sides and get risk rich. That is the end of our MacGuffin. That is what was actually going on. The thing I don't understand is why I didn't think of it earlier. You might have had something else in your mind. That hardly seems likely. And then Kirk <laughs> says, no, but thank you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you, Sarek, would you also say thank you to your son? And he says, in the straightest possible way. I don't understand. <laughs> here's what I here's what I here's another thing that I love about this episode. So, you know, we had a couple of times where there was some definitely some tension, some awkwardness, especially between Spock and Sarek. And then McCoy McCoy show, you know, adds some levity, especially with the mm-hmm. the the teddy bear and in, in during the cocktail reception. So now we just had this big dramatic moment. We had this huge operation, you know, between Spock and Sarek. We had this prisoner, the spy on the bridge during an attack on the Enterprise. And now we're in sick bay, and there's this levity. It's really amazing. It's a testament to the writing, to the, the Dorothy Fontana's writing, a testament to Joseph Petney's direction, and certainly a testament to the performances of the actors that everyone is able to shift tones in such an abrupt way that it feels organic. The other thing that I think is so interesting, which I never would have thought of except for doing this show with you, is that this is literally exactly what happened in the cell in Bread and Circuses, is... McCoy wants to thank him for saving his life. And Spock says, I just did what was logical. There's nothing to thank me for. And that's exactly what Sarek is saying. Spock acted in the only logical manner open to him. One does not thank logic, Commander. Logic. Logic. I'm sick to death of logic. Which, by the way, there's a song in My Fair Lady where she says, words, words, I'm sick to death of words that I always hear when this line gets said. (laughs) Do you want to know how I feel about your logic? This moment. I can't decide if I totally love it or just think they're being such jerks to Amanda. Emotional, isn't she? She has always been that way. Indeed. Why did you marry her? At the time, it seemed the logical thing to do. (laughs) See, what I think, Steve, is I think that both Sarek and Spock are in cahoots. Yes. they They are both just playing with Amanda. This is family stuff, right? It's family, family always kind of busting yeah. little balls and have a little fun at her expense. Because exactly, they're busting I mean, her she shots. Just went off on, on their logic. She just went off on their logic, so they're kind of returning it back in kind a little bit. For but sure. it's a way to bring them together, right? And isn't that what she ultimately wants? Is her father and son together, even if they have to take a little barb at her expense? And I wonder if Roddenberry wrote this or if Fontana wrote this scene, like we saw earlier with Kirk interfering. Uh, was this a scene that was written by a man or by a woman? I wonder. So, well, well, you know, it, it you know, uh, Gene Kuhn did a couple of polishes, and then Roddenberry oh. did a polish himself. Hmm. But Dorothy Fontana has said that, as as I'll get to, you know, um, that the episode aired at, at the way it was envisioned. Hmm. So, hmm. you know, there there are some episodes, Johnny, okay. where you know when you look at the earlier versions 
of the outlines and of the teleplays. And you just think to yourself, how do you go from this to what we saw on the screen? Like it really is amazing how these, some of these episodes have evolved from what they were to what they became. But in this case, it sounds like, you know what, this is exactly what she had in mind from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. and I, and I do think that it is exactly what you say this moment in, in this strange way, this is Spock and Sarek both saying the thing that they have never actually said, which is, I love you Yeah, to right. the whole family. You know what I mean? And right at this moment, Kirk starts to say something and then just totally stumbles himself. This is our third or fourth stagger in this episode. <laughs> And, and I think we've almost kind of forgotten that he's really, really wounded. No, 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 no. no. If you keep arguing with your kindly family doctor, you're going to spend your next 10 days right here. If you cooperate, you'll be out in two. And then Spock starts to get up. Doctor, I think I'll return to my station now. You are at your station, Mr. Spock. And then this is so fun. This is one of my favorite little bits at yep. the end of a Star Trek episode. I agree. Dr. McCoy, I believe you're enjoying all this. Indeed, Captain. I've never seen him look so happy. <laughs> and then this moment is great. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> and no matter how many times you see an episode like this, it's still a surprise and a welcome surprise of levity. And McCoy turns back because Kirk is about to say something. And he's he whispered, shh, shh. And McCoy looks at Kirk. McCoy looks at Spock. And then he almost breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera. And that great great last moment that is so delightful well what do you know i finally got the last word <laughs> guys come on it's great it's great it's a great one and i'm I, maybe that's gene coon and maybe it's dorothy fontana i don't know but it's a great final moment scott what did people say about this episode of star trek well there was a lot to be said and there was there, this is this episode is also part of the transition, you know, uh, from Desi Lu to Paramount, and also from showrunner Gene L. Kuhn to showrunner John Meredith Lucas. In fact, John Meredith Lucas received his first producing credit on Journey to Babel, but it was actually a mistake because at this point, even though Gene Kuhn. When this episode was done filming, he had left Star Trek. He left the building, but contractually, he was still he was still contractually bound to be listed as the showrunner producer during the credits. So Kuhn's name was added back on the next episode of Star Trek as producer of A Private Little War, which was the last episode on Kuhn's contract. After that. John Meredith Lucas was listed as producer for the rest of season two. And as for the last words that some of these uh, uh, producers and writers have said, Dorothy Fontana said, Journey to Babel was one of my favorite shows. It was a real love story, me and that script. I thought I had a pretty good lock on Spock. And John, you pointed out uh, Joseph Pevney at the beginning, the director of this episode. He said that was a good show in certain areas. I thought the greatest contributor to it was the makeup artist. Mm. He did a fabulous Mm -hmm. job bringing alien humanoids aboard. Of course, he's referring to Fred Phillips. So then Pevney says, Star Wars, the entire sequence in the bar looks like it came from this episode, (laughs) Journey to Babel. 
Leonard Nimoy said, and this is what I was talking about earlier. He said, Mark Leonard and Jane Wyatt asked me if I had any suggestions about the Vulcans. And I said, it seems to me that the Vulcans are hand-oriented people. Maybe you could find a way to demonstrate when you walk together, instead of holding hands, maybe they touch fingers, which Mm -hmm. I thought was a wonderful touch. And then Mark Leonard, who played Sarek when he was uh, still with us, and he was uh, talking about the legacy of Journey to Babel, he said, I was in New York, I went to a theater, and somebody came up to me and said, oh, I've seen your segment on Star Trek 39 times, referencing Journey to Babel. And Mark Leonard responded, oh, uh, an infrequent viewer, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, So for me, this shows, uh, it's a really good episode. And the the big thing it shows to me is one of the differences between doing TV and doing a movie. In a movie, you want to wrap up, generally, you're going to wrap up the whole story. So whatever the character's journey they're going to go on, they're going to get to the end of that journey. And if they need to evolve, they'll evolve to the place they need to get to. In a TV show, the point is to maybe involve the characters slightly, but also keep them with the same basic conflicts. And And that's what I think this episode does so well, which is that, it evolves Spock, but it doesn't change. You know, Spock is still filled with this turmoil. In fact, what we do is we add more to it because now we can put a face to his father and to his mother, and we can feel the pressures of those on him. And we can see the little kid who with the stiff lip who refused to cry. We can see this long 18 year period where he didn't speak to his dad and four years where he didn't visit him. And we can see that, Hey, it's not that Sarek and Spock are now going to be perfect buds from this point forward, but they've taken a step towards healing and having my own father and my own father issues with my dad and having and seeing these relationships within families. You don't just heal it all, but you take a step forward. Yeah, exactly. John, John, what's your, what's your, your, your reassessment of journey to be able, especially after this conversation? I mean, I don't know if I can reassess something I already love and love it more. I guess I could say that. I came out of it loving the episode even more, really appreciating this. As Scott said at the beginning of this podcast, that it is one of the last gasps of the greatness of of, of great episodes of the Star Trek series. And I appreciate that badly because you can tell when you watch. And the fact that it's 2022 and I'm at the age that I'm at and I rewatch it and still enjoy the hell out of it. It makes me fall back in love with the original series as all the great episodes of this series do. Uh, it makes me, it makes me even more uh, confident that this series will endure for many generations to come long after the three of us have uh, shuffled off this mortal coil. Huh. These will be lessons that we relearn and we re-experience uh, the, the generations after us and connect to, whether from a personal place, as Steve and I have done, the father situation, or from a political place. Because, I mean, at the at that end, what you're seeing essentially can appeal to that scene in The Godfather where the Michael witnesses that uh, uh, rebel under Castro throw himself into a car and blow up a policeman and say this is why they're going to win because they're willing to sacrifice. It's a political commentary mm-hmm. within everything else that's happening here emotionally as well. It's an incredibly intelligent episode with multiple layers to explore and examine uh, and talk about. And this is just one examination. I'm sure we could revisit this 10 years later and take out even more from stuff as we would have done 10 years ago if we had looked at this episode, the three of us, we would have taken different things out of it. And so that's what's fascinating and so great about Star Trek when it's on point 
it will speak to you in so many ways and you'll find yourself thinking about episodes like this when certain things happen to you in your life. So just a, so great to revisit this one with you too, for sure. Well, that, those are all great points, uh, both of you, John and Steve. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that um, really just got to me this time hmm. just was how, you know, we've, we talked about how there actually is established continuity throughout Star Trek, even if it wasn't intended to be when they were developing the original series, but it's there and yeah. we are seeing themes and motivations stretch all the way back to the earliest episodes of the original series, as we talked about during this podcast presentation. And I just think that that rewatching it and talking about it now, what I'm able to appreciate more is just all the levels that you're talking about, John, all the all the 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 A story, the B story, all the different things that are happening in this episode, and just the way that Joseph Pevney and certainly Dorothy Fontana and the actors are able to balance everything and bring it all to a close on a delightful note in a way that it all feels natural and organic. And like I think that is such a testament to the strength of the episode and the strength of the producers and writers and actors working on it. And that is why Journey to Babel was definitely a journey worth taking time and time again over these last 55 years. And I got to say, Johnny Roca, thank you so much for joining us again on Enterprise Incidents. It is so great to talk a Star Trek with you, but of course, movies with you and Steve on the cinephiles. So, so John, where can people find you? Because you are everywhere. <laughs> well, uh, you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Um, I'm also doing much more stuff on Twitch, the Outlaw Nation, all one word on Twitch. There, watch alongs, movie watch alongs. Maybe these two gentlemen will join me down the road once I establish that more to do some watch alongs of movies through Amazon Prime. Uh, and then also, you can find my other podcasts, the Top Ten and the Geek Buddies, and of course, the Cinephiles that I co-host with Steve Morris out there for you all to enjoy. And I think that's everything that I've got. Oh, and on the Hollywood Critics Association page, I've been co I've been hosting and co-hosting the book of Boba Fett uh, uh, after uh, a show and the after party after show from Apple TV as well. That, that's everything. And if you want to find enterprise incidents, we're all over social media. You can visit us on Facebook where there's long, interesting conversations going on in the comments. You can follow us on enter incidents on Twitter, enterprise incidents on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, where we'd love to get your reviews on Spotify, where we'd like your ratings, YouTube, where we want your comments and pretty much all the other podcast platforms and if you want to reach me you can do so at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and if you'd like more stories about fathers and sons well we've covered a whole bunch of movies that deal with those topics on the cinephiles including one that john mentioned amadeus of course back to the futures deals with fathers and sons the Godfather films definitely have a lot of fathers and sons. <laughs> Ratatouille, the little rat is trying to convince his father that he can be a cook. We have a really difficult father and son relationship in There Will Be Blood. And of course, you can't talk about fathers and sons without talking about all three Star Wars movies of the original trilogy and the ultimate father and son film, in my opinion, Field of Dreams. You can check oh, cool. out conversations on all of those on the cinephiles. Scott, how do people find you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance, but please make sure that you spread the word about Enterprise Incidents. Share it on your social media platforms, whether you're uh, a fan of just the original series or a fan of Star Trek as a whole, and uh, make sure you review 
Enterprise Incidents on Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us uh, your, your best possible review because uh, we need those reviews to really kind of get the word out. And we really, really appreciate your support. And uh, coming up on the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, uh, I would say this one is probably the most what is bound to generate the most heated political conversation because it certainly did that when it aired back in 1968. And it is uh, an episode that is still uh, worthy of very, very intense uh, conversation. I'm sure we're going to have one. Next on Enterprise Incidents is a private little war. So join us next time. And until then, keep going boldly.